WAPG Airline Pilot Guy Airline Pilot Guy episode 279 Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia, an Atlanta suburb. In today's episode, unruly passenger arrested after in-flight altercation with a cabin crew. New clues surface in the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. More news, your feedback, and a new plane tales segment, the Maverick of Malta. So get all settled in. Tray tables and CPACs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 279 is ready for pushback. Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier here in the United States of America. And this is an aviation podcast. If you're just listening for the first time, we talk about uh, aviation news and answer a lot of folks' questions about our jobs and what we do. And uh, let's see. Also, I have some guests here joining me from... Doctor? 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 The Carolinas, we have... Doctor. Doctor? 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 A marathon runner? A commercial rated instrument pilot or a commercial instrument rated multi-engine, all kinds of things that she does with general aviation. <laughs> and you can see I didn't write any of this down, so I'm just like floundering, but uh, everybody knows who you are, Dr. Steph. Say hello, please. Hello. Glad to be back for 279. I missed you guys for your little feedback extra earlier in the week because I was actually working my day job. Ooh. But um, yeah, it's a beautiful Saturday morning here, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys. We're uh, glad that you could join us. We missed you on uh, Tuesday when we recorded that show, at, uh, or Monday, whenever it was. Uh, let's see, also, yeah, yeah, it was Monday, I think, the day before the Monday. Independence oh, okay. Day. Yeah, anyway, uh, also joining us from, well, he's normally across the pond, but today he is in the Empire State. Long Island in an undisclosed location with incredible bandwidth, apparently. A wide, <laughs> wide body Airbus captain for I a whatever. <laughs> it's Captain Nick. Hi, everybody. I do need to write this stuff down. <laughs> very eloquent. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Starring, starring as usual. Now, I flew over uh, just a little while ago to uh, New York, and uh, they switched hotels on me to uh, what we've referred to as Grandma's House. And Grandma's House Hotel um, is does has, has awful bandwidth. So I put out a plea uh, to our listeners in the area and a marvellous bloke who you're shortly going to meet, meet uh, Reed Fischler. He, um, he is an internet wizard. He uh, is a fantastic bloke. And he very kindly invited me over to his salubrious office uh, in, um, 
on Long Island to uh, share his band with. So here I am working out of uh, what I have to say, a fantastic surroundings. And as every mod con here, it's, it's very luxurious. I have to but say it's gonna have salubrious is one of my favorite words in the English language. So thank you for using. <laughs> well, speaking of this gentleman, this fine gentleman and salubrious offices and all that kind of stuff. Let's play a little intro for him. Our guest in- intro music. We have with us the internet genius. What did you call him? Internet. Uh, I forgot what you just called him. He's, a, he's an internet backbone and a co- co-location provider. He is uh, he's a heavyweight in the world of internet. So if you want to know about gigabits and uh, um, bandwidths and, uh, you know, car, I don't know. Everything else, everything you want. That Wizard. That was it. That was the word you used. Ah, okay. Okay. Was, anyway, was, here is the internet was, wizard himself. Oh. Read. After that, I, I should just bow out now. <laughs> if you were smart, you would. <laughs> okay, and I know you are smart. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming to Nick's aid, and of, of course that uh, that benefits all of us here on the crew as well as everybody listening and uh, so glad to meet you reed very well thank you yourself as well all right oh so as nick just mentioned let's just start with him because he uh, was kind of catching us up with uh, you know the fact that he just uh, took a trip over across the pond and got in sometime yesterday i'm assuming last night uh, it wasn't too late. We got in about, uh, uh, I think, about half three in the afternoon. Oh, okay. Probably nice weather. Uh, <laughs> well, it's forecast to be nice. We looked at the forecast when we left London, and uh, it was there was going to be a little bit of uh, wetness, some heavy showers uh, earlier on in the day, but it was going to be fine for our arrival. Uh, and, of course, uh, the Met men got that decidedly wrong. Um, so uh, I was uh, looking at it thinking, oh, I've got a friend uh, who can give me a bit for more information about that. So before I departed London, I texted uh, uh, dispatcher Mike, who we all know, and just said, Mike, what's your feeling in the water about the, uh, the heavy rainstorms, possibly thunderstorms in the New York area? And he said... Yeah, I see the Tafts looking okay uh, at New York, but if I were you, I'd put on a little extra fuel, which I did. So uh, on the way over, um, we had already heard that uh, our previous flight uh, in had uh, been put in a hold. Uh, thunderstorms had closed uh, um, JFK for arrivals. Uh, he ended up diverting to Stewart Field. Uh, he had to do a refuel there. Uh, we came in, we had enough uh, fuel to hang around for a bit, and luckily the storms uh, cleared in time to allow us in. The backlog wasn't too bad, so uh, we eventually got in, and uh, the the previous aircraft was supposed to land several hours before us, um, came in behind us. <laughs> so thank you very much indeed, Mike. Dispatcher that, uh, Mike comes to the rescue. Absolutely. That sort of information is like gold dust. Someone who knows what's going on can pull up all that uh, data in front of him and go, well, I don't know what uh, those Met Man are saying. If I were you, I'd I'd, uh, be a bit cautious. And that's exactly what I was. So brilliant. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, he is a brilliant guy. And, you know, experience means a lot in this business. 
Absolutely. We settled in and then um, I uh, managed to get into contact with uh, Reed, who's just in the uh, little office next door, and also Dave uh, Abbey. We got together last night, had a bite to eat in a little German keller just around the corner from the hotel, had a few beers uh, and very pleasant set up uh, what we're going to do this morning. So here we are. And uh, I don't know what my bandwidth is, but everything's humming and dinging in this office. I can promise you that. It looked, you look great. The bandwidth is obviously very, very nice. I always look great. Jim. Well, that's true. Yeah, silly me. <laughs> so um, just quickly, well, not quickly, but uh, take as much time as you want. Um, it was, it was, you talked a little bit about it last week uh, when we did the feedback extra, but uh, you had that special guest over there in the UK and somebody who is, you know, well known in the uh, tight inner APG chat circle. Liz Piper. Oh, that was that was the lovely Liz. Yes, she was over in the UK um, and making a special visit because uh, she and my wife uh, behind my back have actually become quite close internet friends. Uh-oh. And uh, what they used to do was uh, message each other while they were both watching the same tennis matches because they both have a love of tennis. And uh, Jilly promptly said, well, I've got two tickets for a day at Wimbledon. You know, what a shame you can't come over. And Liz went, hey, what do you mean I can't come over? So, so Liz leapt on a, uh, I think she leapt on a Dreamliner. I'm sure she would have picked an Airbus if she'd had more time to book, but uh, she didn't. Uh, she came hurtling over, spent a few uh, days with us. Um, we had a nice barbecue, bit of a meetup, uh, which we heard about on the uh uh, feedback special last uh, half show and um, then she and Jilly spent a wonderful day at Wimbledon at least I gather it was wonderful and uh, since then she has positioned herself this time uh, you know with her fingers in her ears on a, a Boeing triple seven triple trouble you know what I mean um, got herself safely thank the Lord um, back to Canada, where she is now, and she's back in the chat room. So uh, uh, nice to see you safely back, Liz. And she's enjoying uh, two of her loves, her passions. Uh, one uh, being, of course, this uh, show, Aviation, Aviation Geek she is, and also tennis. So she tells us that she's watching tennis and uh, watching us right now at the same time, multitasking. Expert multitasking. That's right. Yes. So, Miss Steph, uh, what's what's new with you? Oh, um, not a whole lot new. Is there a clock like in the background? <laughs> I think that's Nick that clucking or something. Oh, oh, very good sound effect there. I was, I was obviously. <laughs> okay, not, I have a, fooled. I have a sound effect, a clock sound effect for Nick. Hang on a minute, Dana's not here. <laughs> oh no. All right. So moving quickly on from this, uh, how am I doing? Yes. Yes. I, uh, uh, actually, pretty well. Um, last weekend, speaking of weather and flying, I made three attempts at going out to keep my currency up in the 172 so I can keep renting that plane when, I've, when I would like to. Um, the first attempt I made, well, the first day I had myself on the schedule, it was very foggy in the morning, so that was not going to work. So I woke up, looked at it, said, nah, not even going to go to the airport. It's going to be several hours. People have the plane the rest of the day. Put it on for the next morning because the forecast actually looked really nice. There was no mention of any chance of fog or low ceilings in the morning. And I got up and I looked at looked out the window. Gorgeous morning on Sunday last week. So I said, all right, we're going to go. So and my dad wanted to go with me. So I got him in the car and it was early because I wanted to do a little sunrise flying. So we were at the airport at like 6 a.m. 
and still gorgeous. I got out there, pre-flighted the airplane, and within 15 minutes, socked in fog, <laughs> which hey. stuck around for the next two, three hours, and then people had the plane. So we went to breakfast, and I put myself on the schedule for the evening. I was like, well, if I can't have sunrise flying, I'll get some sunset flying, and that worked out just fine, actually. So Oh, it did. I, had to go I was going to say. You know, probably oh, yeah. had thunderstorms or something in the evening. Well, I was worried about that. It did call for, you know, the forecast was calling for kind of a stray. I mean, as we get pretty much every day in the afternoon here in the south, there's always that chance for some convective activity in the afternoons. But um, nope, it held off and it was actually really nice. I took the uh, little 172 up from Concord up to Lexington, which is a small GA airport not too far away. Just did a whole bunch of pattern work, touch and goes and things, and then came back had my currency and it was nice. I got, I had a new, um, one of my birthday gifts was a new GoPro. So I tried to record a little video with it, although I didn't have anywhere to mount the GoPro. So it's kind of in an awkward location in the plane, but I'll see if I can put some of that together and, and put it up. Cause it was really you, were hold, you were holding it in your teeth. I was holding right? it. Well, yeah. I was like, <laughs> lying, was, um, a little saliva coming over the lens, <laughs> but actually the, the pictures turned out pretty good and the, the video turned out pretty good. So I just have to figure out how to actually edit that video now. And then, um, yeah, I'll post some of that. Cause it's, I don't know, it's not terribly exciting, but you can see it's the best video was of me coming back in to Concord. So you can see if you look over to the left, the Charlotte Motor Speedway, and then you can see Charlotte in the distance, and the landing wasn't too bad either. So I don't feel too uh, embarrassed to post that. <laughs> yeah, <you'll- laughs> the nice, nice thing about those is you can always edit the landing. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's right. It's like, yeah, that one wasn't so great. Yeah, unlike real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Too bad. Now, Steph, I'm just curious, what kind of fog was it you suffered from? Oh, gosh. You know, I was, knew someone was going to ask me that question, and I don't know. I have to go back and look at all that stuff in the weather. I'm not good so, with my different types of uh, fog. Let me give you a choice. Was it uh, okay. front, frontal fog, uh, advection fog, or radiation fog? Uh, one of the last two. Uh, I'd say it was from all the drinking that she did the night before. Damn. Yeah. Bam. Oh, well, here we I go. Don't know. I, I never never did you drink called a fog cutter out there that'll probably <laughs> go through that. Now, so uh, was it uh, calmish winds, three to five knots, viewpoint? Uh, yeah, yeah, and that temperature close. very close together. Yes, that's what it is. So radiation, radiation, perfect. There we go. See, I knew someone would. Captain Nick is so smart. <laughs> I know. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> see, I, the reason I never really bothered to learn because it's like, well, it's fog. So who cares? It's fog. <laughs> what kind of fog? I don't know. It's like really thick. It's it's, it all looks the same. Too. I can't see anything. Can't yeah. tell. So. Now, interestingly, interestingly uh, did the fog burn off from the surface upwards and turn into low stratus before it cleared? Um, Are you trying to be Miami Rick? Yeah, he is. Well, you know what? I, I, I think it did, but I'm not entirely sure because I didn't stick around to watch that happen. I went to breakfast. Oh, okay. Uh, out, I like fog. Mostly, mostly fog's good. <laughs> I have an interest in fog. All right. Apparently so. So and asphalt well, as then, well. I think that we'll hear from that later in the show. <laughs> yes. No, no, oh, that wasn't, wasn't you. Was somebody else. That was another guy. <laughs> the old curmudgeon. Yeah, that was the other guy. Uh huh. Okay. Well, um, and then the other thing I did, I was actually yeah. just real quick went down to Atlanta on Tuesday, which was the Fourth of July. Oh, that was a big thing that you and, did. Yeah, I ran the Peachtree Road Race, which is just a 10k run, but it's the largest 10k run, if not in just the country, pretty much in the world. There were 55,000 people, over 55,000 people that finished the race, which is amazing to me because it was really, really hot, really, really humid. Um, I don't know. We we started in one of the very first groups because we submitted really fast 
marathon, half marathon times that we had run. I didn't run anywhere near that fast on the day of this actual race because it was very hot. But thank goodness we didn't have to start at like nine o'clock in the morning because it would have been that much hotter and sunnier and just generally miserable. So, but it was a lot of fun. We did that. And then uh, my friend and I went to the pool over at Emory University and spent the rest of the day there and then came back home. So, now when you say you went to the pool, it's not like you were laying outside around the pool. You were actually probably swimming laps or something ridiculous. I swam a few laps, but mostly we just sat on the edge of the pool and oh, okay. did nothing. Yeah. Cool. All right. And it was a pretty good time, I think. Didn't you have a pretty good time on uh, that 10K? 56 minutes. Under an hour. 20 seconds. Under an hour. Yeah. So about a nine minute per mile pace, more or less. That would have it's only... funny the way they give you your, your statistics. You can see they, they give you your statistics for the first half of the race and the second half of the race. And you can see how much better we performed against other people in the second half of the race as compared to the first half of the race. So either people went out too fast or they just got caught up in the, you know, the heat and the humidity was too much for them and they fell off their pace and we held a pretty consistent pace and made our stats better. So nice, nice. All right. Well, uh, I went out on a trip this week, uh, left on Wednesday and Wednesday through Friday and uh, had a nice layover in Fort Myers on Wednesday and then on Thursday. I got a chance to meet up with uh, someone we all know and love. In fact, he's here. Both these folks are in the chat room, uh, Micah and uh, APG community member Mark Adams. And uh, we went to, a, well, you know what? I talked about it in this audio feedback. So let me play that for you. And that way I don't have to repeat myself. Hello. We're at El Rodeo. El Rodeo. <laughs> El Rodeo. Uh, Mexican restaurant uh, in South Portland, and I'm here with, let's start with somebody that you've heard before, his voice. He's from Maine. He's a man. His name's Micah. Can you guess who it is? It's Maine man Micah. Hey, Jeff. So nice to see you today. It was uh, always great when you can come up here to PWM, and uh, even when you have to land in a strong crosswind. But it was an amazing landing, and with any luck, our next guest is going to send you a video of it so that you can post it for everybody to see. Of course, I'll have to review it at first uh, just to make sure that it meets all of my you know minimum standards. No, actually, I've actually we've seen it, and uh, I think I can release it to the public. So, uh, thank you to uh, main man Mark. Hang on, here he is. Well, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here. It's uh, as I was saying, it's kind of a surreal experience meeting you and uh, kind of putting a face to the voice that I've been listening to for the past several months. But uh, uh, you're referring to your landing there at PWM. It was a great landing. Uh, you nailed it right on the mark and uh, did a fantastic job. Uh, but been listening to the podcast since uh, about January of this year, I guess. And I'm not even sure where I got the, the idea to listen to it. I don't know whether I was just looking at podcasts or what. But uh, I just uh, started listening to it one day and I said, boy, this sounds pretty cool. Started listening to it and uh, just have just had uh, APG syndrome ever since. <laughs> it's been it's been really really great. I listen to it on my way to work all the time, and uh, it's just it's really really been enjoyable. Uh, one of my one of my favorite parts, as I, as I think I've told you in the past, has been the old pilot's plane tales. I've really, really enjoyed that. Uh, thanks, Captain Nick, by the way. That was uh, really, really enjoyable for me. Uh, but yeah, we had a great meal here and uh, and a great day. And glad I really, really glad I got to got a chance to meet you. I'm glad that you took the time to come all the way down from Lewiston, Auburn area. I love Maine. Maine is such a beautiful state, and I'd like to go visit. 
Where you, no, where you live, uh, sometime in the interior portion of the state. I hear it's beautiful. Uh, and and thanks for you know taking the time to come down. I know it's you know not right around the corner. So uh, always a pleasure. We were talking about uh, the show and how it's evolved over time. And I, I said one of the one of the most special things about doing the show for me is doing what we're doing right now, just getting together and meeting the real listeners behind the the, the real av geekery out here. So. Anyway, so it's been uh, it was all my pleasure, and uh, Micah would like to say one more thing. He's he's motioning my way. Should I give him the Should I give him the microphone? Okay, here we go. You know, I was going to say how Mark talked about how wonderful it was to meet you, and what a thrill. And I was a little bit nervous, and I remember when I felt that way too. But now it's like, oh God, is Jeff coming in again? Oh, I got to pick him up. Oh, is he going to call me? Oh, what, what can I oh. Get but 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 the truth is what's really neat and what i talked to mark about when we met there at the pwm spotting lot is uh, with our community that has become so special that it's no longer uh, a matter of oh jeff's coming in and you know and i'm going to be nervous and all that it's like oh my friend jeff is going to be here this is great we're going to be able to get together and have lunch and just hang out and it's what makes it really special so it's really nice to see you jeff it's always great to see you as well micah thanks and uh Mark's daughter is here too, but she is elected to to remain anonymous, and I don't blame her. <laughs> okay, she is. <laughs> anyway, so that's uh, that's it. Uh, great, great uh, little meetup here in uh, South Portland, and Captain Jeff out. Anyway, great uh, great meal at uh, El Rodeo, or as uh, Micah likes to call it, El Rodeo. Um, and it was a pleasure meeting Mark Adams. I don't know if Mark's still in the chat room or not, and uh, his daughter, Carolyn. Um, yeah, it was a great time, and uh, I didn't realize that the microphones really picked up that background music there. <laughs> I think Nev was saying in the chat room, is that some kind of a Pl- uh, Placido Domingo gig that you're, you're at? <laughs> uh, Placido Domingo? Placido, that's it. Placido. I, I prefer to, uh, that's like to pronounce it. Uh, in uh, in the native language, uh, I can hear <laughs> reckon, myself. In echo, by the way, do you reckon YouTube's going to pull that now, Jeff? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It might. <laughs> so you're not going to be able to watch this particular episode in Mexico, probably because <laughs> of the copyright violation on YouTube. <laughs> anyway, I hope it doesn't. But uh, now that you mention it, it might actually. Oh well. Uh, so, oh, by the way, uh, Mark gave, brought a gift for me, and uh, I have it here if you're watching the video. Um, it's the uh, history, uh, the illustrated history of a major U.S. airline, and you can see on the top there, he modified it. It is Acme Airlines, and uh, he, he modified all the, the entire picture on the front cover and <laughs> replacing my real airline with Acme. And then I was a little disappointed when I opened it up, and it turns out that he didn't do that for every single picture, just the cover. So, oh. Yeah, but that was a lot of work oh, that he went through. That is a lot of work. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> anyway, so uh, great meeting you, um, Mark, and uh, your daughter. I had a great time. Um, speaking of meetups, we have a meetup coming up this week, actually on Tuesday. Uh, I'll be in, I'm leaving on a trip again on Monday, a four day trip, and I'm going to be in Baltimore on Tuesday. And we're going to meet up with uh, Hillel and some others already have uh, expressed their interest in uh, joining us as well at Dempsey's Brew Pub and Restaurant 
Uh, let's see. You got the address here. It's uh, 333 West Camden Street, Baltimore, inside the warehouse and right field of Camden Yards. Uh, right there in the Inner Harbor area of uh, downtown Baltimore. Again, that's uh, on Tuesday, the 11th of July at 1600 local time. So I'm looking forward to seeing Hillel and uh, others. Uh, I think uh, I can't remember um, the gentleman's name that's coming up from uh, DCA, but uh, I've, I've seen the discussion on the meetups channel of the Slack group. By the way, we'll, we'll talk about that and how you can join Slack, the APG Slack, uh, later uh, at the end of the show. Hillel will. Hillel. Hello, just hang on. We still have more to more show to yeah, go. The, but yeah, he's back. Yeah, in the, I'm in the bathroom. Again. Yeah, he's in the Closet. bathroom. <laughs> but he'll he'll make an appearance at the end of the show and tell okay, us how good. we can all join Slack. Um, yeah, so there we go. Baltimore on Tuesday. Um, oh, uh, speaking of meetups, I, I see that also on the meetup channel in Slack, uh, a, a gentleman named Fred Sampson. We all know uh, Fred. He's a great guy. He's out in Northern California, and apparently there's some kind of a uh, Kind of a meetup planned there. Uh, it says NorCal pilots potential fly-in lunch with Old Dot Pilot at either Livermore, Nuttree, or Petaluma airports on Friday, July 14th. Please let me know if you're interested in flying out with us. Stay tuned for other meetup announcements or pipe up with suggestions. So, uh, Nick, do you uh, do you have any more details about that? Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that detail. Okay, well, we're just now uh, informing Nick of the meetup that he's going to be attending on I've been, Friday, I've July fourteenth, with Fred, uh, because I'm my next trip's to San Fran, and uh, I'm not supposed to call it that, am I? That's no, that's a bit. Uh, just call it Frisco. It. They love that. Frisco. <laughs> no, don't, Frisco. don't. They really hate that even oh, more right. than San Fran. Damn. Well, no one's going to come just to the meetup now. Then San Francisco, um, I, I think, is good. <laughs> So I'm coming to this city just north of LA um, that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Fred lives at, and he's, <laughs> it's a little city. It's got a got a little bridge, <laughs> um, and um, he's going to take me flying. I thought, which sounded great. I did no idea he was going to arrange a kind of a flying, which sounds fantastic. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. That sounds great fun. Thank you, Fred. Yeah, and just stay I tuned. Hope it wasn't a surprise. Stay well. I hope not either. But it was on Slack, so I'm assuming it wasn't a surprise. Didn't say. Don't oh, tell anybody. Well, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, so that's another reason to join Slack uh, again. Hello, are you going to tell us about Slack at the end of the show? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So uh, we'll uh, just, you know, follow us on uh, APG crew on Twitter, uh, airline pilot guy on Facebook, and uh, we'll and and join us on Slack as well. And we'll have more information about that. I'm sure. Um, Let's continue with the meetup thing. Uh, We're going to have an Atlanta meetup uh, in. Let's see. Today is the. It's a week and a day from today. Thanks. Yeah, Yeah. that's soon. I didn't realize it was that soon. Uh, An Atlanta meetup. Um, well, you know what? Um, we talked about dispatcher Mike and how he helped out captain Nick with adding some fuel for his trip over. And, uh, he's also going to help us with, uh, telling us about this Atlanta meetup. So take it away, Mike. Hello, APG crew and community. This is dispatcher Mike. I'd like to invite all of you to a meetup that I'm uh, going to be organizing in the Atlanta area on July 16th. On the last episode, the feedback extra episode, it was mentioned that there was a listener that wanted to maybe do a meetup at a Braves game. 
And it was also mentioned that our favorite Kiwi, uh, Glenn, was going to be in the Atlanta area from New Zealand on his way to Oshkosh. So uh, going along with what Dana said, he looked at the Braves' schedule. Uh, July 16th is going to be a uh, home game where the Braves are playing uh, against the Arizona Diamondbacks, and it's a 131st pitch. So I decided to take the ball and uh, run with it. Um, we're hopefully we're going to have enough people to get a, uh, a group rate with the, uh, with the Braves. So here's a schedule of events. We're going to meet in the, uh, Atlanta Braves N29 lot. That's November 2-9er lot. Uh, starting about 1030, uh, tailgate. Uh, I'm envisioning, uh, grill, uh, ball food, uh, beer. So, you know, Burgers, hot dogs, beer, you know, baseball. Uh, pretty much feed ourselves uh, before going into the stadium. And then first pitch is at 1.30, and our seats will be located in section 112. Cost uh, is $35 per ticket. Um, if you would like to attend and come uh, come out and hang out with us at the ballpark, uh, see the beautiful new SunTrust Park, uh, there's some... Uh, Aviation themed parts to the uh, baseball stadium. Uh, really cool to see those as well. Um, but come out, hang out as a community. Uh, if you've never been to an APG uh, meetup before, I strongly recommend that you can come. If you're if you're in the area, uh, come on out. Come in, hang out with the community. Uh, they're always a great time, and I always always tell myself I might have just met this person today, but I feel like I've met, uh, I've known them for a really long time. Uh, we have a really unique community, and I think it's gonna be a great event uh, watching a baseball game uh, with everybody. So, if you could please uh, send me an email if you're interested in coming, so I can uh, get it tally and uh, get some tickets uh, through the through the Braves. Uh, send me an email contact at flyinginlife.com. And if you could put in the subject Braves or Braves tickets or something like that, put that in the uh, subject so I can uh, help find it. Uh, easier for me and then we'll uh we'll discuss over email everything else so uh i hope that you are able to join uh join us and uh for this new fun meetup so hope to see you there thanks mike thanks for taking on the uh organizational uh aspects of this meetup um, i'm really looking forward to seeing glenn and meeting other uh folks in the atlanta area uh, for this meetup and also for checking out that uh, new ballpark suntrust field uh, the new home of the atlanta braves baseball team so yeah sounds awesome are you gonna be able to make it over here steph i'm gonna be in chicago so oh yeah it's not gonna happen no. then Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so thanks, uh, Mike. And as, as you said, contact at uh, flyingandlife.com. By the way, he is the host of a fantastic show. Uh, in his last episode, we had uh, somebody who is in the chat room right now. Matt uh, from Down Under was uh, at an air show down there and uh, got a lot of great uh, audio from the air show interviews, that kind of thing. So uh, check out Mike's uh, fantastic show, Flying and Life. All right. And Can I just uh, have a 
a quickie, Jeff. Uh, I've got a couple of thank yous to say before we sure. move on. Yeah. Um, so I received um, marvelously three uh, sets of books in the mail um, the other day, and uh, I just wanted to thank everyone who sends uh, me things that I might be able to uh, use as a basis of plain tales, which is basically what they're all about. Um, the first one was from Ruben, who sent me uh, an autobiography of um, uh, C.E. Ball um, called All Things Are Possible, and I'm really looking forward to uh, reading through that. And Carlos of uh, Plain Talking uh, UK um, sent me a fabulous story, uh, uh, a book of uh, stories from the Royal Air Force. They're, they're kind of jokes and funny things that happened and uh, uh, interesting, in inverted commas, uh, called Out of the Blue too, And um, the guy that wrote the foreword, I know him well, and a lot of the country contributors i actually don't quite well that's kind of a bit embarrassing and um the other one was uh um uh, flight and flying uh, a hamish uh, hamilton collection edited by john pudney just stories um about uh you know uh, aviation, uh, interesting aviation events. And that was Tom Seagrace, the very first uh, APGR I ever met at a meetup. Uh, so thanks very much for that, Tom. And uh, I really appreciate everyone's input to Plain Tales for giving me ideas. Uh, today's, of course, was um, from Adam Spink, who uh, sent me uh, the theme of uh, today's Plain Tales. So thank you for that, Adam. Excellent. Well, our community is just awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we couldn't do it without everybody's help. It's great. Okay, uh, let's see. We also have some audio regarding yet another meetup, this one in Oshkosh, and from uh, the gentleman from New Zealand that we were talking about who is coming to Atlanta. Apparently, you got to go through Atlanta to get to the EAA Air Venture in Oshkosh. I'm glad that you have to do that so we get a chance to meet Glenn in person. But he sent in some audio feedback regarding possible meetups in the Oshkosh uh, event. Hello, my fellow APG syndrome sufferers. It's Glenn here from New Zealand again with some more feedback. Uh, Oshkosh is fast approaching. So I thought I'd have another, fe- uh, another meetup this year. Um, the Brown Arch again. Everyone knows where the Brown Arch is if they've ever been to Oshkosh. Um Twelve o'clock on the Thursday. Be there or be square. I hope to as many people make it as possible this year. I know some of the BFFs in our little room already know about this, so yeah. So I hope to see you all there. Uh keep up the good work, of course, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Uh Glenn out. Thank you, Glenn. Um so if you're attending Oshkosh the Brown Arch, everybody knows where that is, apparently, and uh, that's on Thursday. Unfortunately, uh, I may make it up on Wednesday, possibly, of uh, that week, but uh, I'll miss your meetup at the Brown Arch on Thursday. But uh, contact Glenn if you uh, want more details. And also, again, there is a on Slack in the meetup section. Actually, it's a separate channel. It's the Oshkosh 2017 channel. So uh, if, you're, if you're heading to Oshkosh this year, you should probably join Slack and join that channel so you can see what's going on. All right, I think that does it. Lots of a uh, lot of meetup activity here this summer, which is great. And now I believe it is time for us to talk about just quickly the coffee fund. 
Johnny? How about some more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Jive community. Oops. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the Java Jive. It's a little ditty we like to play when we're talking about the coffee fund, which is your way to support the show in a financial way if you can. Again, uh, our disclaimer here, if you are someone who uh, needs their money to pay for the roof over their head or the clothes on their body or the food that goes in their mouths and stomachs, don't send us any money, please. And uh, Oh, yeah, most importantly, if you're saving your money to get some flight training and become a pilot, well, we certainly don't want you to spend your money uh, on us. But if you happen to be financially positioned to uh, send us some little extra cash to help support the show, well, feel free to do so by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And since the last show, we have... Uh, using the PayPal uh, method, the uh, Coffee Fund Classic method, uh, Andrew Saylor, Ian Griffin, Sealview Nicolescu, Jason Payne, and Jeff Moeller. And then if you'd like to become a patron of the show via Patreon, that's uh, patreon.com slash guy, or just go to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, and then you'll find out how you can get involved in these uh, different ways of supporting the show financially and uh, since the last show we have some new patronage going on uh, let's see Nico Rager um, Mike Clark uh, upped his uh, monthly or uh, per episode amount uh, he doubled it he went from five to ten dollars per episode Mike wow that's awesome you didn't have to do that but we do appreciate it um, also a new uh, patron Michael or Mikal, or M-I-C-H-A-L. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but uh, we also have a new pledge, um, a $10 pledge, big one, by Stuart. And we have a new uh, patron as well, Owen Swanson. So if you want to become part of the Coffee Fun Cadre, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. Uh, let's start with this um, on Wednesday. This is actually, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of this uh, lady, Sylvia Wrigley. Uh, she's in the UK. She has a website called Fear of Landing. She's also a published author, uh, writes uh, aviation books. And uh, I just kind of stumbled upon her website very recently, and I signed up to uh, get some email alerts from her. And uh, she wrote on the 7th of July on Wednesday... The news hit the headlines that a newly discovered photograph could show Amelia Earhart in Japanese custody. The photograph, apparently taken by a U.S. spy in the 1930s, shows what appears to be a seated woman with rough curly hair. The location of the photograph is given as uh, Yaluit or Jaluit Atoll on the Marshall Islands, which were at the time held by the Japanese. 
A figure on the left could possibly be Fred Noonan, her navigator. And finally, on the right of the photograph is a blurry something, which apparently could possibly be their Electra. And the photograph was uh, released uh, by or to the History Channel or by the History Channel to draw attention to their documentary about Amelia Earhart, which is entitled Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, which uh, is going to be broadcast here in the U.S., uh, tomorrow, Sunday, July 9th at 9 p.m. And uh, let me play a little bit of the teaser uh, or trailer or whatever you want to call it for this particular show that's coming up uh, tomorrow night. A veteran of air crash investigations, Colonel Hampton has put his experience to work in researching all available records of Earhart's final flight to map out her most probable flight path and to determine exactly where it may have ended. In your experience as a pilot, do you believe she could have made it to Millie Atoll? At first, I didn't. And the more I dug into this and the more I researched it, the more I realized that not only was it possible, it was probable. So she took off from Lane New Guinea, heading for Hallen Island. What you're going to see on the takeoff is the Electra staggering down the runway for about 2,000 feet and barely getting airborne, which means to me it was carrying the full fuel load to capacity. Lockheed's detailed flight instructions say Earhart's fully loaded Electra could fly at least 4,000 miles, 1,500 more than the distance to Howland. The problem was they're using dead reckoning, which is a system of comparing what you see on the ground to what you've plotted on a chart. That depends on landmarks. And the last landmark they had was this island of Nukumano, which they passed over about 800 miles into the flight, right as the sun was going down. No visual land image? No, no land image. And it was overcast. She commented on that. There was no way for them to update Okay, well, that's a little what bit of a taste of this uh, History she- Channel special that is going to be... Uh, broadcast tomorrow night. I uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'll, I'll at least record it. Yeah, maybe I won't watch it tomorrow night, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, new evidence has cropped up and some new theories about what happened with Amelia Earhart and her navigator Fred Noonan. What do you guys think about this? I mean, I think it's. I, I think we'll always be fascinated by this because it's that whole. No one really knows what happened, so there's a lot of theories out there. There's a lot of. Um, things that potentially could be evidence. You know, you have things like these photographs, which are old photographs, which aren't really great, high detail, high quality. So it's easy to say, oh yeah, that's definitely this or definitely that, but no one really knows at this point. So um, I, I love stuff like this. So I'll definitely record the show too and watch it when I get a chance. Yeah, you know, it uh, exactly pretty much 80 years ago and when is when all this took place. I think she took off from Papua New Guinea uh, on the 2nd of July, uh, 19, what was that, 37? I think wow. that's 80 years ago. Yeah, yeah, so it's almost, you know, 80 years to the day almost uh, when this um, uh, new photograph was discovered and re- at least released. So, uh, Nick, uh, were you um, in the uh, Pacific Islands perhaps back then in 1930? Uh, 38 37 uh, well i remember it well yeah uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean i i i did amelia Earhart's flights before she did them so, uh, <laughs> oh really nick I actually was, took that photograph he's being oh, honest yeah <laughs> i i put a skirt on and i did all those records first so she you know um i just uh i, I love the way people can uh, resurrect what is really 
not evidence at all and turn it into such because uh, unless she was the only short-haired woman uh, in the world at the time, uh, a short-haired woman sitting on a dock with her back turned to the camera, I'm going, uh, it's not really evidence in my eyes, but perhaps I'm not seeing the whole thing. I, I, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy uh, uh, enthusiast. I find the whole concept of uh, um, ghosts, uh, UFOs, and conspiracy theories nothing more than a money-making machine for those who rake it over again and want to make some more money, write another book, whatever. Oh, a little bit of healthy skepticism from Captain Nick here. <laughs> I'm afraid so. I'm sorry about that. That's good. Healthy skepticism is important, I think. He's 100% on board with chemtrails, however. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. oh, well, they real. What, what guys? Oh, remember we're not supposed to talk about We all know about that. <sighs> oh, sorry. Now I'm going to have to edit sorry. all this out. <laughs> <laughs> you mean we're live? Sorry. Yeah, we're live. Can you hear me? Uh, Reed, what do you think about this? Any uh, any thoughts about uh, Amelia Earhart and the uh, disappearance and the this new discovery, this new photograph, and how it's going to just change everything? I, I I'm always tempted to say that if they actually ever found anything, it wouldn't be on a reality TV show on cable. That is uh, another dose of healthy skepticism from our special guest, Reed. Thank you. <laughs> I'm still going to watch it, though. It's kind of fun to, to oh, see I'm all this stuff. Oh, I'm going to watch it. I, yeah. I, and I'm not saying that I buy into all the conspiracy theories, but I enjoy listening to all of them because I find them entertaining. And if you realize that it's, at this point, primarily entertainment, because like Nick so eloquently said, there's nothing that's any real evidence here. But I think you can enjoy it for entertainment's sake at this point. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting story, and it's lovely because it's a it's a historic fact. It's Correct. a true story, and it and it was a daring attempt uh, by Amelia to do all the various things she did, and the fact that she uh, disappeared um, on one of her record breaking flights. So, you know that that is just. Yeah, that's a cracking good story. Great plain tale stuff. So don't get me wrong. I, I love uh, generating these kind of stories and I love watching them. I just don't actually, I just am quite capable of withholding my belief. Yeah. I, I think, Absolutely. I think that uh, represents probably a majority of us. Uh, so uh, anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. I thought it was kind of a little interesting. Um, speaking of interesting. Yeah, we have some passenger misbehavior going on again. We seem to have a lot of that uh, very often. Uh, but uh, this one involving an event that occurred just a couple of days ago, uh, a flight, a Delta Airlines flight, Delta Flight 129, left Seattle and was heading over toward Beijing and uh, somewhere around British Columbia, uh, at that point, uh, I don't know how far into the flight here. I'm sure it says so in the um, in the uh, article that I'm looking at from one hour, I believe. Okay, one hour. This is from CNN.com. Uh, apparently, a passenger, Joseph Daniel Hudek the fourth, a 23 year old passenger from Florida. Well, there you go. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, was arrested. Because he ended up uh, getting out of a seat. He was traveling, by the way, in first class on a dependent travel pass, a perk afforded to family members employed by the airline. Oops. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be a good thing for the employee. Uh, he, uh, anyway, got up 
attempted to open the forward exit door on the right side of the airliner. Two flight attendants tried to subdue Hudek, but were pushed away, and he continued his attempt to open the door. According to the complaint, Hudek was able to move the door handle mechanism and push the emergency release lever halfway. Aircraft cabin doors cannot be opened at high altitudes because of the differing pressures inside and outside. We know that as Delta P. There we go. Uh, The differential pressure uh, keeps the doors from opening once positive pressure is on the airplane. And they were about 32,000 feet or so when this all happened. Anyway, flight attendants signaled to passengers uh, that uh, they needed some help. And during the altercation, Hudek punched a flight attendant twice in the face and hit another assisting passenger with a bottle of wine. He then attempted to open again, open the exit door. As the struggle continued, another flight attendant grabbed two wine bottles and struck Hudek in the head, breaking one. Hudek did not seem impacted by the breaking of a full liter red wine bottle over his head and instead shouted, do you know who I am? (laughs) Yeah, we do now. (laughs) Or something to that extent. According to the complaint, Hudek was able to break away several times during the altercation. Several first-class passengers and uh, other flight attendants eventually were able to restrain Hudek long enough to put zip-tie handcuffs on him. He remained extremely combative all the way back to Seattle and needed to be restrained by um, multiple passengers until the Delta flight landed, according to the complaint. So I think we're all getting a sense here that this guy probably had more to drink or eat he probably was it sounds like he might have um, you know been on some kind of drug or something going on here based on this behavior but um, i don't know what do you think about this yeah i mean it's definitely something abnormal whether it was substance uh, influenced or not um, there's many reasons why people can behave poorly um, i don't know if we'll ever find out the reason for why he was acting in this manner whether it was just he had malicious intentions without the assistance of any substances or whether the substances were making him think he could do all of these things for whatever reason he wanted to. So now, you know, if, if I were that flight attendant up there, I would say, I just watch him and go, okay, let's see, open the door because give it a try, buddy. <laughs> the, the door is not going to open. In fact, private pilot rich sent in uh, feedback, I believe today or yesterday. Uh, he said, um, this is a quote from an article in the Seattle Times regarding the incident on Delta 129. Quote, one flight attendant later reported that the door could have been opened if it was fully disarmed at the altitude they were flying over the northwest end of Vancouver Island, B.C. And he says, uh, looking at FlightAware, it seems they were over 30,000 feet when this event occurred. I did not believe it was possible to open a cabin door in flight, both due to the design and Delta P issues. Can you shed some light on this? Thanks, Private Pilot Rich. You are correct, sir. He cannot open the door unless they depressurize the airplane. And if they had a uh, depressurization event, uh, then uh, everybody would be in big trouble at this point. Uh, yeah, the door is not going to come open. And in fact, no, and it, it makes no difference whether it's armed or not. Right. Uh, a door can be opened both armed and unarmed. The only difference is that when it's armed, the slide will go off. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know why people have this idea in their head that uh, they can open doors once the airplane is pressurized. And by the way, it, it really does depend on the airplane. I think that uh, I'm not sure about the Airbuses. Probably once you switch from ground to flight logic, is that when the uh, aircraft starts pressure, pressurizing on the Airbuses, Nick? 
Uh, certainly, yeah. Okay. And uh, once you're on the runway, then uh, all the pressurization dumps below a certain speed and the ram air valves open and uh, we equalize. Okay. I know that uh, on my airplane, the, uh, the Mad Dog, according to our manual, uh, with the airplane on the ground, the automatic system pressurizes the cabin when the throttles are advanced for takeoff. At this time, a 60-second timer is also started. If the airplane's not in flight within 60 seconds after throttles are advanced for takeoff, the cabin depressurizes. In the event of a rejected takeoff, the cabin automatically depressurizes when the throttles are retarded. Uh, so uh, when we push the power up, uh, the, uh, the there's a little bit of a pressurization um, happening there to keep the doors in place and keep them from rattling and possibly opening up. And then uh, af- after the airplane is actually airborne, then the full schedule kicks in and the pressurization uh, continues to pressurize the airplane, lower the cabin so that up at 35,000 feet, 36,000 feet, whatever, your cabin altitude peaks out around 8,000 feet or so on, on my particular airplane. Um, I remember also, um, and, and as Nick said, uh, you know, the once you touch down and the uh, ground shift relay or the flight to ground shift relay kicks in, that's when the uh, pressurization system opens up the, uh, the, the, the doors to allow the system to uh, or the pressure to equalize so that you can open the doors when when you're on the ground. And we've had some accidents in history where uh, doors or the airplane was still pressurized after landing. And, and there was a what was it? An L-1011, I think that. Uh, was probably the greatest catastrophe regarding uh, a pressurized uh, vessel that uh, they couldn't um, they, they couldn't open the doors and there was a fire inside and uh, I think almost everybody I think everybody was killed in that one. Um, but was that uh, the one that landed back into uh, an Arabian airfield um, with a cargo fire I, that came through the floor and. Uh, Everyone was overcome before they even shut the engines down and no one could get on board to let them out because they couldn't open the doors from the inside or the out. I think so. And it, or it may have been that the person, there was a, a passenger back there with some kind of a portable cooking device, like an open flame cooking device that somehow caught the airplane. I don't know if it was a cargo. Is that it? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't remember this incident okay. at all. But It was probably before you were born. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> but uh i was on. No, i was thinking to myself um you know that uh, there's a a certain uh, number of pressurization that occurs or pre- pressurization differential and then i thought oh no i think that's from the 727 my 727 days and uh, with the mode selector in auto and the airplane on the ground uh, the cabin altitude will descend to 200 feet below the present field elevation, resulting in a differential pressure of less than 0.125 psi. And again, that's just to kind of keep all the doors, you know, nice and firmly closed and uh, keeping them from rattling as you're rolling down the runway and that kind of thing. And then once the airplane is in the air, then the uh, the full pressurization schedule starts. Um, so, yeah, interesting because I right on plenty of airplanes where we open the door um, once we get to our cruising altitude. It's not, it's not a normal thing. No. no. Yeah. Well, Just, that not, not in your <laughs> typical passenger airliner. Is that a normal thing? But I think that you're referring maybe to the ones that the airplanes that you've actually jump out of. Jump out of? Yes, yes. Ah, okay. So. <laughs> maybe he wanted to skydive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's where I've seen that before. Okay. Just checking. Yeah. Different thing. Different thing. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, if, uh, if if they didn't keep the cabin pressurized to 30,000 feet or higher, then uh, I think everybody would have be a lot of unconsciousness. Yes, yeah. there would be a lot of that. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, so it's interesting, Jeff, I've rejected a takeoff before now when a passenger tried to do the same thing um, during the initial part of the takeoff roll. Uh, and um, they grabbed hold of the door handle and tried to open it. And I got a, a very uh, anxious telephone call to the flight deck. Uh, and so I stopped the takeoff. Uh, and that was a similar sort of thing. But of course, on the ground on that stage, it would be possible uh, perhaps to open the door. But luckily, the the passenger that was having a bit of a mental breakdown was uh, a lady. And uh, they were able to wrestle her to the floor fairly easily. But these things uh, do happen. Luckily, uh, I was just thinking, actually, with our system, we tend we get airborne with our packs off. Uh, we only put them on at 1,500 feet. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm pretty sure you might be able to actually open a door. Yeah, I bet you would. Before we put the packs oh, yeah. on. Yeah, and if they've got them armed, you're going to have a nice slide out there, too. Should be fun. Yeah, well, uh, I I know for a fact that uh, way back at when when our airline started, we had a pack that blew itself uh, in the climb because <laughs> you know they're they're mounted uh, on some aircraft, particularly the old seven forty sevens, in a kind of a frangible thing beneath the door. And I think one of these uh, slides went off and then flapped around a bit, then fell off. <laughs> yes, that can't be a good thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> And, you know, from the general aviation side of things, I'll say it ha- happens not infrequently where a door doesn't get latched properly sometimes. And if your door does pop open after you take off, um, the correct thing to do is just not worry about it and just come back, land normally, because the airplane's going to fly just fine with that door open. Make sure everyone's got a seatbelt on before you take off. That will help keep everyone inside, you know, and um, it's, it's really not an emergency if that happens. So, yeah. Now, I'm curious, Reed does an enormous amount of uh, flying all around the world with a huge variety of airlines. He's given me a, uh, an example of some of the, uh, you know, bags you get when you're on board the amenity kits. And uh, he's got ones from Emirates uh, here, from Ethiopian, a few from them, uh, the Philippines. He, he keeps them. I've got, he's got sets of uh, pajamas from airlines all around the world so he must have an enormous amount of experience back in the cabin uh, and i'm just wondering if he's uh, ever experienced another passenger um going a bit loopy or doing anything out of the ordinary read thankfully no and uh I, I i i would agree with jeff i i would just basically let him do whatever he wanted to do at that point there's there's nothing he's going to do let him burn off whatever whatever's in his system and then uh and then let's go on. I, I I luckily have not been in a situation where any any of that needs to be uh, taken into account. Yeah, so it, it, it's like a lot of these things. Um, uh, I mean, Reed really does fly a great deal. So uh, uh, he spends most of the year uh, uh, out of this country, moving around the world. Um, and uh, if, if it's rare enough that he's never encountered it, these are incredibly rare incidents. And uh, they hit the headlines because of that, because they're unusual. That was kind of fascinating to me when I did a little research on, you know, the different airplanes and, you know, the pre-pressurization or whatever you want to call that, um, that, uh, the fact that the Airbuses don't 
pressurize it, you actually take off with the packs off. Now, we, we'll occasionally take off with packs off um, for enhanced performance, like if it's very hot and it's a short runway, like flying out of LaGuardia in the, this time of year. Sometimes the only way we can take off um, and our performance numbers are legal and we have to take off with the uh, the air conditioning system packs off. And then once we're in the air, then we can turn them on. Uh, but that's kind of a normal thing for you guys then. Uh, it is an airline, Jeff, and I don't think we're doing everything um, as other Airbus operators would. I mean, airlines develop their own procedures sometimes no. because of a particular event. Uh, so uh, and I can't quite remember what the trigger was for us adopting this. But we have been through several iterations of uh, getting airborne with the packs on, getting airborne with the packs on, powered by the APU, uh, and getting airborne with an off. And the, the, the recent one that's been around longest has we, we have the packs, both packs off for takeoff, put them on. Uh, once we've done uh, the power reduction, uh, and then we put them on one after the other nice and gently so that we don't blow everyone's ears up. Uh, and um, and that, that's the one it's in. But exactly why, I'm afraid, that's slipped into the um, the long distant past and i can't remember quite why we do it that way now interesting so that's not like a airbus uh official this is the way we're you're, everybody should not operate. to my knowledge yeah. but i i know we've got lots of other airbus guys who are probably cleverer than me in the uh, chat room i'm sure someone will let me know if Captain yeah. Al's around there interesting interesting yeah all the airplanes i've ever flown i think uh, they have a little bit of a pressure differential before we actually lift off um yeah. So that's cool. Perhaps Stefan can correct me yet again. Well, we'll see. In the meantime, <laughs> uh, anything else we want to talk about regarding this incident? Uh, you know, at first, I think it was reported that the uh, this this young man who uh, is not going to have any travel benefits for, uh, for quite some time, uh, possibly forever, um, before he decided to get up and try to open the door. I guess a lot of people saw him doing that. It was all taking place up there close to where the cockpit door is. And, uh, some people jumped to the conclusion that he was actually trying to break into the cockpit, but it turns out that that was not the case. So, yeah, well, either way, not good. And, yeah. uh, Jeff, uh, back in the distant past, um, not long after nine 11, didn't a whole bunch of patches jump on a, uh, a guy who was uh, behaving weirdly like that, and he ended up killing him. Yes, they, they I, suffocated. I think it was a Southwest Airlines flight going into Salt Lake City uh, back. Was it? wasn't long after nine eleven two thousand one, and everybody was super hyper aware of what's happening on an airplane. And this guy started going up and trying to beat on the cockpit door. And you're right, they the passengers subdued him and uh, ended up killing the guy. Yeah. Well, just, just, it's not the sort of thing to be taken lightly. Nope. Nope. Can't even be making jokes about it. So. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll save that joke. Yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. Uh, Anything else before we move on to the best part of the show? Nope. All right. Let's do it. Captain. Incoming message. All righty, let's start with, come on now, here we go, Ross. Now, I hope this is not too late for Ross in England. He sent this in um, back in late May. Sorry, Ross. (laughs) I noticed this when I was getting ready for uh, doing some feedback on the show, and it said, hello, airline pilot guy crew. In July, 
we're in July now. My wife and I are taking our daughter, Ella, who is three, to see our family in Pennsylvania. So hopefully Ross has not yet made the trip because he was asking for some advice from us. We're flying from Heathrow to Newark on Acme Red. We're very excited to see to be seeing our family again. But when we went to choose our seats, after we'd booked the tickets, we found that there was a per seat charge of 30 pounds for each flight. So for all of us to sit together both ways is 180 pounds, which is a lot of money for us. I wasn't expecting this with scheduled flights on this sort of distance. I've never paid for a seat reservation on an international scheduled flight before, so I guess things have changed for some airlines in the tough economy. So my question is this, should I pay the money to make sure we can sit together, or is it likely that the airline will take pity on us and put the three of us together as my daughter is so young? Obviously, the last thing I want is my little girl upset on either flight if her mummy or daddy isn't with her. Would uh, being at the airport super early be sensible to hedge our bets on them helping us? Any tips or suggestions are much appreciated. Certainly, if the answer is, hey, Ross, just pay the money. It's what you need to do. Then would be good to know, too. I just wish I'd known before I booked. But hey, there you go. I'm just thrilled to be able to take them on holiday. Thanks for all the plain tales, Nick. They're superb, as is the effort all of you put into the episodes every week. I've topped up the coffee fund and have a pint on me. Thank you, Ross, very much for that. And I I think we have some advice for you. So, uh, who'd, who'd like, Steph, would you like to tackle this one first? Um, well, I'll tell you what I would do, and it may not be specific to this particular airline, but we might have some insider information in a minute here, but... Um, I don't like to leave things like that to chance necessarily. Um, My concern would be that if there is a possibility that other people are choosing their seats, if it's a very full flight and enough people have reserved the seats they want by the time you get to the airport, then you may not have seats together, even if you're there very early trying to hedge your butts and make sure you get assigned all together. Um, You know, certainly in a lot of cases I've, I've seen where it happens where someone, um, you know, a family arrives late for a flight or didn't have assigned seats and people are generally good and they will offer to volunteer to move seats so that a family with young children can all sit together. And that hap- I've seen that happen many, many, many times. But if it were me personally, I and I had a young a child that young, you know, under the age of, I don't know, but certainly at three, that's young enough where I'd want to make sure that we were all sitting together. I would probably just pay the money. But that's me. And Um, I certainly understand that 180 pounds is a lot of money to be paying for a seat. Um, And if it's not possible, you know, if that wasn't a possibility for me, then I think I would do what Ross said and just show up as early as possible and try and see if there were, you know, ways that we could make that accommodation. So I think those are are both reasonable ideas. I cannot imagine a gate agent like separating a three-year-old from Well, my concern would be that they would, well, I think certainly they'll get one parent with the child, but- if you want all three of you together, then I think that's the true. safe way to go is to to pay for the seats. I agree but. with that. Um, but I think that if you decided to to risk it and not pay the upcharge, that uh, there would be a very high chance, in my opinion, that at least one of the parents, either mummy or daddy, yes. would be sitting with the three-year-old Ella. Um, and uh, um, even if for some strange reason it happened where the gate agent was just like evil and said, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to put er- every one of you in a different seat in a different part of the airplane, I guarantee you that passengers would see, wait a minute, 
What's this little three-year-old doing by itself yeah. here? Do, are, you, are you traveling alone? Where's your mom and dad? And then I'm sure somebody would say, and look, come no on. No one wants to sit next to a three-year-old that's traveling oh, that's true. separate from their parents that they don't know. Because then they have to be babysitter or otherwise. And people will get up and move their seats. So I, I think you're not in any trouble if you don't book the the tickets. But um, I don't know. It just, yeah. it's, it's a... You know, how, how certain do you want to be of having those seats together? Where do you want to sit on the plane? You know, uh, there's other things that go into it too, perhaps, but curious to see what, what Nick thinks. I, um, I'm just trying to work out how uh, Ross booked his tickets because in the normal course of events, if you book through the airline website, uh, you kind of get presented with uh, a picture of the airplane. And when you pay for your ticket, you pick your seat. Uh, that's it, and that's your initial pick, and you pick all three together and Bob's your uncle. Um, it sounds like he might have gone through a travel agent uh, or a discount system. I, I'm only guessing. I don't know, Russ. Uh, perhaps, you know, if you're interested enough, uh, let us know, uh, in which case that option might not have been there because the tick, the Seats may uh, have been booked uh, by a travel agent and they're just selling them on, in which case they may not offer that facility. So if you, you, if you don't book through the airline, then that's, that's often a problem. Um, and uh, what's more, if you do book through the airline and go to the, you get the airline app on your phone, you can usually get in there at any time. Uh, you can uh, pick your own seat and you can check in early on the uh, on the app and uh, move your seats around as long as other people haven't picked them and get yourselves together. So if you weren't off of that facility, it sounds like you perhaps were using a different system of getting the seats. Now, this this is one where I can probably uh, shine a little bit of light into yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to ask you your input on this, Reid. I can tell you that there are now many airlines that uh, either will not allow you to reserve your seat, even if you're paying full business class. Uh, Lufthansa now will not allow you to pick your seat. Uh, if you, even if you book directly with them, they want you to pay extra to reserve a, uh, a direct seat. The other thing is, is that there could be a situation where they booked in, I'll, I'll just give the United uh, terms for this, but they booked in economy and the economy section is completely full, but the economy plus or the economy comfort for Delta or the economy or whatever every airline calls it, that area still has seats. So what they're being told is there are no seats available in the section that they book. But when they show up, this is something that many people do. You don't want to reserve seats because when you reserve seats in the section, even if it's available, when you show up, you may be basically bumped up to that economy plus or or economy comfort section. So what I would say is, I agree, you're always going to get one parent next to the, the the child. But I would say that more than likely, they're flying one of the new discount fare buckets, and they probably did book directly with the airline. But make sure that the, that the reservation notes that one of the passengers is three years old. Because at least that way they'll see, and you'll you'll be guaranteed to get a parent and the child together, and more than likely all three. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing that it's probably one of those new super super low fare levels where you know yeah you're gonna you're gonna have a seat, but you don't you know who knows where it's going to be until you get there, and that's just like one of those ways to uh, lower the cost as much as possible, uh, and also maybe for the airline to make a little extra money for those who are. 
um, not willing to just show up and get a seat wherever they want to know where their seat is going to be. Yeah. People like me, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I know where I want to sit. Well, you're a picky person. I yeah. I am picky. I have high standards. Yeah. And, and just remember, there's no guarantee when you reserve a seat that that's going to be your actual seat. They will Correct. and and often will bump you, whether it be for um, for some passenger that requires to sit in that seat or if there's an equipment swap or any number of various other things. So just because you got that seat doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be sitting there either. Yeah, as we learned with that uh, United um, episode with the Dr. Dow, whatever was his name was, uh, that uh, we learned from the, what is it called, the something of carriage, the uh, contract, contract of carriage. carriage, that even though you have a reserved seat and you paid extra to have that seat, uh, as Reed just mentioned. Or even to fly on that particular flight. Yeah. That well, that's not really a guarantee. I guess there are not really many guarantees in the world of traveling. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, thank you, Reed, for your input on on that. And uh, Ross, again, um, apologies that uh, we didn't address this until now. And I hope that you haven't taken the trip yet, and that this advice was helpful. Yeah, and I hope back me Red look after you, and you have a great flight uh, on board. I'm sure they I'm sure they will and I'm sure that, that it'll be a great experience and I'd like to meet your uncle Bob sometime Nick I oh, not mind he's everyone's uncle Okay I've never heard that saying before guy. I love that <laughs> and then Bob's your uncle What what Absolutely <laughs> I love that John writes in uh John Barr um he used the uh, APG app to send us a little bit of feedback and here's his feedback I need some Miami Rick it helps with my APG syndrome. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case. APG syndrome. No pills gonna kill my heel. I got a bad case. APG syndrome. So if you want to send in little pithy comments like uh, John, and, and I agree, Although, John, we do need some I, Miami Hick. Yeah, Hick or Rick? Which one did you say? I probably said Rick, but what I meant to say was Miami Hick. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, might have I, I think we should do with a lot more of both, quite honestly. Exactly. Yeah, that, that is for sure. Uh, that would Rick, be. if you're listening, man, we still want you back. We miss you. Come on. <laughs> yeah, we miss you. So and we got something from Rick right now. Wait a minute. Rickets. Oh, yeah. No, never mind. Aw. <laughs> uh, <aww. laughs> Aw. Uh, Luke says, good day, Jeff and crew. Remember me? Luke from Tasmania, Australia? Probably not. That's okay. No, we remember you, Luke. It seemed for a period of almost six months I've been cured from the notorious APG syndrome. But, of course, it has returned into my system. It was about a month ago when I was poking around the Google Play Store, a podcasting app appeared in my suggested. From there, it was a slippery slope back to my same old ways. And I've spent more time trying to catch up on episodes than I'm willing to admit. Come on, you can you can let us all know. We're among friends. <laughs> we won't tell As anybody. Bill says in the chat room, use the force, Luke. <laughs> all things aside, though, I'm I'm determined to find time in my busy schedule to get my APG fix, and it's great to see the community still thriving. It's been almost a year since my license test, and my word has a lot of stuff happened, and my word has it been awesome. Well, for the most part. A couple of months ago, I was unlucky enough to witness a fatal accident, and it was one. Uh, and I was one of the first on scene. 
if nothing else, it gave me a massive respect for emergency services who encounter that kind of stuff daily. It's always important to take away something from accidents and implement it into how you fly. In this case, it was pre-flight checks. It appears at this stage the accident was resultant of a disconnected aileron, which caused an uncommanded roll left after takeoff. So I am now super thorough in creating a sterile environment in which to pre-flight the airplane. I now leave my phone in the club rooms and leave passengers on the other side of the fence. The sterile environment drastically reduces the likelihood of distractions, which we believe was a factor in this uh, this accident. Like they say, you don't have to be paid to fly to be a professional pilot. Absolutely. I feel that there's probably something everyone can take away from this and implement into their future flying, even you heavy metal drivers. Yep, distraction is a killer for sure. On a lighter note, I'm back in the air and my YouTube channel now features a few videos I've compiled over the last year. Feel free to give it a look if you've got a few free minutes. I think they we they would be particularly valuable. Let me try that again. I think that they would be particularly valuable and entertaining to those who are involved in recreational education. And then he gives us a link to his YouTube channel, which I'll put in the show notes. I don't know how long it will take uh, for you to get to this, but feel free to read it on the show. Oh, good thing he put that on there. (laughs) Now I'm finally getting it toward the end of this. Uh, I'm glad that you said don't read this on the show, or I'm glad you didn't say that. I'm glad to be back. You guys didn't think you could get rid of me that easily, did you? No. Once again, Jeff, thanks for the hours of effort you put into the show weekly. I look forward to the many enjoyable hours of aviation conversation to come. Blue skies and tailwinds. Luke, he sent this in toward the end of May. I'm sorry it took so long for us to get to Luke, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, all right. So, uh, I haven't had a chance yet to check out his YouTube channel, uh, from the last time that I checked it out. So I intend to do that after, after the show. I think you should do yep. copying, copying the link into my browser right now so I can watch it later on. Good to have you back, Luke. Sorry for the uh, syndrome, but you know, as I said, we, we did miss you, but yeah. Yeah. We have some breaking news of a sort. Uh, this is something that Reed, our special guest, uh, made us aware of uh, very recently, like just a few minutes ago, and uh, involves an opportunity for those of you out here who are looking for flying opportunities to possibly take advantage. And uh, there, I guess this guy has a YouTube channel and uh, creates YouTube videos about flying. I have not uh, subscribed to this channel myself, so I'm all new to this as well. But apparently there's some kind of a contest or something going on. So let's take a listen to uh, this gentleman and his YouTube video regarding this opportunity to get a flying job in Hawaii. I've only been flying here at Mokalele Airlines for a short period of time, but I've received some of the best feedback on these videos that I've ever gotten. You guys have been the best subscribers and viewers that I've ever had, some of the most engaged people that I've worked with, and I really want to find a tangible way of giving back to you guys. With some of that feedback I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of pilots, dozens of pilots, emailing me and messaging me, asking how they too can come work here at Mokalele Airlines. So as of right now, I'm announcing a special 10-day hiring opportunity for any qualified subscriber of this channel to live out their dream as an airline pilot right here in Hawaii. This is the kind of flying that you can look forward to. 
flying around. Applications from today until 10 days from now will be accepted. Check out that link below for details. Our company is guaranteeing that at least one captain and one first officer will be hired during this 10-day period. Our CEO, chief pilot, and other Mokalele management leaders are going to select the applications that best fit our company and then bring them into our team. The best part is, if your application isn't selected right away, it will remain with the company as if you had applied normally for future hiring considerations. For just these 10 days, we've reduced the minimums to be hired as a first officer here, and we've also eliminated our standard phone interview and prior simulator testing that's required to become a Mokalele pilot. of requirements can be found on my website swainmartin.com or through the link below make sure to follow all of the instructions on that page our airline receives hundreds of applications for pilot positions especially first officers so while i can't guarantee that your application will be selected right away i can't guarantee that for these 10 days your application will be at the top of the stack i really want to thank you again for being a subscriber of this channel you guys make my job a ton of fun i really hope to see a few of you flying out here soon all right. Well, I tell you what, if the job would pay my the rest of my student loans, I'd be applying right now. But sadly, I'd probably have a lot of student loans. <laughs> quite covered the bills. But that's an excellent opportunity. And anyone who's, you know, flexible right now with where they can relocate to, or if you're already in Hawaii, or if, you know, you need an airline job, this is great. Uh, what a great start to a how I got here story. Absolutely. Yep. And again, this uh, YouTube channel is Swain, S-W-A-Y-N-E, Martin. And we'll put the uh, link to the channel in the show notes as well, of course. And you can uh, rewatch the video and go to the website and uh, make your application. This is, uh, sounds like something that would be a dream of a lifetime. And it might be your way to get your foot in the door of a career in professional flying. Yeah, that was a great spot, Reed. And Reed tells me that. See, that that uh, um, it's not a podcast, is it? It's a, a YouTube channel. It's a mm -hmm. great aviation one to watch. It's fun. Well, I just hit the subscribe button, so I'll be uh, oh, watching. Get a job. Well, I don't think I'm going to be applying for the job. <laughs> I think I like the one that I have right now, actually. Uh, really? But, uh, yeah. Flying mad dogs out of Atlanta. You could be in Hawaii. Oh, man. What are they flying in Hawaii? The caravan? Yeah, a caravan. That's although, a lovely, lovely although airplane. I wouldn't mind flying with that captain. She was a uh, uh, yeah. good-looking. Anyway, I thought they towed yeah. caravans. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes, sometimes they fly them, but they slap a wing on it, and uh, yeah, anyway. Off a cliff. So this this guy looks like uh, he's pretty new to the flying professional flying game. A very young person uh, sitting as a first officer on the caravan flying for Mokalele. Jeff, they all look young. I know they do. Uh, shut up. You're right. At our age, everybody looks young. <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you, Reed, for that. And hopefully somebody will uh, be able to take advantage of that. And if they, if they do, please let us know. Send us some feedback and say, hey, you know that video? Guess what? I got a job at Mokolele or Mokolele. It still sounds like a cocktail. Acme Pacific. Acme Pacific. There you go. Acme Hawaii. Hawaii. It sounds like a, it just sounds like ukulele to me every time you say it. Mokulele. I know. Imagine just someone like sitting there, like strumming along on a ukulele. I love Hawaiian words just sound so. They're pretty. Melodious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
getting back to the uh, the feedback. <laughs> Sorry, the feedback. Uh, Luke, uh, we're not sure if this is the same Luke uh, that had the hiatus and is suffering from APG syndrome or not, but it doesn't matter. Hello, APG team. Can you please explain what circumstances require a flight to reduce power and level off very early during departure? I experienced this on a nearly on nearly every departure from Sydney and found another example in this video for the listeners to see what I'm referring to. Skip to the five minute point. And he has the link to the YouTube video. I happen to have extracted some of the audio from that. And so we're going to take a listen together and see what he's talking about. There you go. So why are they reducing the power at that point? And by the way, uh, based on a rough calculation that I made when I was recording that, that was about two and a half to three minutes after they actually took off. And that is not unusual at all. Um, I, I know that many of us have um, noise abatement procedures on our particular airplanes and our companies um, you know, have different different policies regarding that on my airplane when we reach a, a 1000 feet above the field elevation we transition from takeoff power to climb power and a, and a lot of times if we're using reduced thrust for takeoff the the transition from takeoff power to climb power is not even noticeable because you know we're taking off at a reduced power uh, to begin with but if you're taking off at a higher power setting and you go to the thousand foot point or whatever the point happens to be, uh, and you bring the power back just to save some fuel and make less noise and that kind of thing, trying to be a good neighbor to the people that you know, are surrounding the airport, that will happen. But in this case, I think it was probably a little bit higher than that altitude. And there are procedures where we fly that we have to level off below 10,000 feet. Uh, and I know that this varies uh, around the world as far as uh, re- speed restrictions below certain altitudes. But here in the U.S., if you're below 10,000 feet, you're restrict- you are restricted to 250 knots. And so, for instance, if you have a departure, and many of the places that we have uh, departures uh, from, we end up having to level off at 5,000 feet or 7,000 feet or you know something below 10. And you can't keep that power up because otherwise you'll go screaming through 250 knots uh, when you level off. So the power comes back to maintain that 250 knots. And then when you resume the climb, the power comes back in. And then once you're above 10,000 feet, usually that power stays in that climb power setting until you get to your cruise altitude. So that's that's what I have to say about that. Any other expert? Um, I would also say any ATC restrictions that you're given, whether there's traffic or uh, probably mostly traffic at that point. If it's a busy time of day, a busy airport. So speed restrictions, people crossing in different places. And yep. So. Absolutely. Yep. The, uh, the thrust reduction after takeoff goes way back uh, to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, when it was introduced as a, as a noise reduction 
um, procedure. And we've just carried on from there, quite honestly, even though the jet engines we use nowadays are so much quieter than the, the pure jets they had on airliners in those days. Uh, and really, once you're finished with uh, the, the level of thrust you need to ensure a safe takeoff, then it's just to uh, quiet the engines down, let the airplane accelerate more gently whilst you clean it up. And uh, Steph's quite right, you might uh, be held off for traffic. But if it's happening at the same time on uh, on that departure out of uh, Sydney uh, every day, it's almost certainly going to be either the thrust reduction for noise or a constraint that the guy uh, has got to meet. He's reached the altitude. He has to stay at that altitude for a little while. So he's pulling back on the powers, just says, to uh, keep his speed under control. Yep, it's as simple as that. Thanks for the question, though, Luke. Uh, I'm sure that you're not the only one out there who has it and wonders why, you know, the power comes back so so dr- dramatically or drastically. And especially in that, that uh, airplane with the engine so far forward uh, in the cabin on the wings. They're not in the cabin, but the, I, I always uh, kind of chuckle when I hear somebody taking off uh, and you, they're making their radio call. And you hear this in the background. I thought, oh, that's an Airbus, <laughs> not a not a big wide body Airbus, but the the smaller buses. They those engines are the fan noise is just amazing and loud, and it comes breathe pretty loud too up in the cockpit, if I remember right. What's that? Isn't the the seven three seven thirty seven pretty loud? Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't hear the same thing when I hear the seven thirty seven guys or gals talking on the radio. I don't hear that <laughs> in the background, but I do on the Airbuses, and I so it's almost every single time I hear that, I go, "Oh, that's an Airbus." I can tell. Well, you're used to those whisper quiet uh, mad dogs, Jeff. Those engines are engines way. Are yeah. Complete other end of their, they're in the toilets at the back of the airplane, aren't they? Yeah. And so if you have a seat back there in the back of the airplane, it's really a racket. But, uh, if you're anywhere from midway in the fuselage or cabin forward, uh, you don't hear a thing. In fact, that was one of the weird things about me transitioning. Uh, I was flying the 727, even though the 727 engines were on the tail as well. I guess they were louder. And I could hear them. So when you're starting engines and stuff like that, and you're pushing the power up for taxiing, you could actually hear the engine uh, spooling up and that kind of thing. But on the on the Mad Dog, a lot of times, you know, you push the power up and you really can't hear it. You have to look at your in- engine instruments to see that the uh, uh, the engine's actually responding. That's how quiet it is up front. Well, and hopefully this is reassuring because I know there's people out there who are nervous flyers and, you know, they're sitting back somewhere near the engines of their aircraft and they hear this on departure and they start wondering all kinds of things. Um, but this is normal. Yeah, You're supposed to hear that. That's supposed to happen. Um, yeah. I always wonder when I always wonder when that happens, like we have a special a lot of times like they'll they'll give you a departure and they say the the top altitude in the departure is 7000 feet, let's say. But usually before you get to that point and level off, they've already cleared you to a higher altitude. So you never hear the engines pulling back like that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes because of traffic or whatever, they have to keep you like going out of Miami and you have people coming in from over the Atlantic and they're going to cross over you. So you'll level off at 7000 feet or whatever, and you'll bring the power back. And I'm thinking. I bet some of these frequent flyers are going to think, "Uh oh, that's not a good sign. We're going to probably have to come back." Uh, you know, mm. for uh, uh, no, I think I think the frequent flyers experience it enough to know it. It's you know, travel. I'm sure Reed has seen this or two. You know, when you're sitting in the back and you're sitting around people who are clearly not frequent flyers, and it happens, that's when they start looking around a little bit, going, "Uh, oh, okay, okay, what's what's going on?" You know? I, I don't think Reed ever sits in the back. 
No, I don't think so either. He's, all those amenity kits, he's he's nowhere near the engines yeah. of the aircraft. All the pajamas, he, he's he's an upfront man. He he turns left at the door. Well, the plebes, the rest of us plebes who have to sit in the back sometimes, um, you can see that happen. Reed's up there with his pajamas and uh, drinking his champagne. That's right. That's right. I wonder what's happening with those little people in the back. Yeah. <laughs> They're all um, freaking uh, out. It, no, it, I'm just kidding. It's interesting you made that point, Jeff, because when I came out of the military, uh, I was kind of used to sitting in between two jet engines, and I hardly ever had to look at the uh, engine instruments to check what kind of power setting I had, because you just set it by the tone of the engines. Um, and uh, when I did my first few trips to an Airbus, despite the fact you you, you uh, probably go, are oh, they quite noisy? For me, I was going the engines how am i going to set power and i have, would have to stare at the, in, the engine instruments on uh, on manual thrust approaches to uh, to know what and i found it oh this is this is terrible i can't i hate this scan <laughs> i'm looking at my instruments i'm looking at the runway and now i've got to set all four engines to the right power setting without being able to do it instinctively just by listening to them yeah but then as as you know you just get used to that you know you you, you get used to the fact that you're not hearing the engines anymore or nah, not. Just put the auto thrust in. There you meanwhile, go. In That's general easy. aviation, you can <laughs> see it right in front of you. What's that? You know. Oh yeah. Meanwhile, in general aviation, you can just see it right in front of you. You know what your prop is doing. That's true. That's yeah. a good point. Very good. Okay, so Luke, hopefully that answered your question. And uh, Robert says uh, just quickly, hi Jeff and crew. Uh, by the way, Robert in Marietta uh, on the northwest uh, side of the uh, Atlanta Metroplex uh, is is the guy that was saying, hey, we should go to a baseball game. So hopefully, Robert, you are listening to this episode uh, and you'll uh, be able to join us on Sunday the 16th uh, to our little meetup at uh, SunTrust Field. Anyway, he says, thanks for the recent frank and open discussion on crew depression. I'm finally home for a bit and was able to take a fellow aviation enthusiast to the Delta Museum today and walked through the newish 747 exhibit. You're welcome to post these photos if you'd like. So he took some photos of the 747 exhibit, and now we're going to cue Captain Nick in, and he's going to say something derogatory. Oh. Uh, no. Okay. I, I don't forget my father used to fly these airplanes. That's true. That's true. I think it's the perfect place for them in a museum. <laughs> well, I knew it was coming. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Nick writes in. Not you, Nick, but uh, this is Nicholas Hewitt. Hi, guys. Loving the show. I came down from the syndrome, uh, came down with the syndrome about a year ago, and I've been suffering happily ever since. I was talking to a pilot of a Flybe Embraer E190, also my favorite aircraft, after a recent trip, and was surprised to hear that he and his co-pilot actually have a particular particular aircraft that they prefer to fly within their type. In this case, registration Golf Foxtrot Bravo Echo Juliet. Is this the case for you guys? Is there a, a particular mad dog Captain Jeff looks forward to flying? Same for Captain Nick. Is there an individual aircraft that you look forward to flying? Do you guys even consider the registration of the aircraft when allocated, or are they all the same to you? Thanks for all the work and effort. ABG has helped distract me in some tough times recently. My week wouldn't be the same without it. Hope I have uh, the opportunity to meet you guys here in rainy old Wales at some point. Nick. Well, Nick, I'm glad that we were here to kind of make your life uh, easier, and uh, we're, we appreciate the fact that you appreciate us. And uh, sorry about the syndrome, but what are you going to do? 
But uh, getting back to your question about a particular airplane that we enjoy flying, I have to be honest with you, the the fleet that I fly, uh, the MD-88s, I think we have 128 of them. And then I think the 90s, we have 63, 64 of those. So all total, almost 200 um, airplanes of the type that I fly. And... uh, I do pay attention to the registration on it because I uh, have to, because I have to make sure that when I get in an airplane, that the paperwork that I have for the flight and the um, logbook that I have, that's uh, that is the same as the registration number of the airplane, because the FAA kind of frowns when you're flying around an airplane that has the wrong logbook uh, in it. Uh, but other than that, I really don't notice much of a difference between the, I, I do notice that some airplanes do fly a little bit differently, but I've never made a mental note like, oh, registration November 917 DA is my favorite MD-88 because I love the way it rolls or the way it, you know, the way it lands or whatever. But, um, being that, uh, Captain Nick, that you fly, um, a, a smaller fleet of airplanes, not a smaller airplane, but a smaller fleet of them. Do you have like particular airplanes that fly better than another or are your favorites no i i don't know whether it's a function of fly by wire or not but uh they all seem to fly uh, in an identical way i mean there, there are none of them that are a little bent say or you know sit there and you need a little bit of extra trim or whatever no i think fly by wire kind of takes all that out of the uh, system which some people might say is great but the fantastic advantage is it really doesn't matter which airplane you're in you're going to fly it exactly the same way as you did the last one obviously there's a difference between the two types i fly but that's uh, you know that's obvious when you're flying an airplane with only two engines that's a hundred and something tons lighter then you're going to feel it <laughs> so, there's going to be a difference <laughs> yeah but the only thing i really dislike uh, is walking out and finding the airplane's really dirty or it's got some say cowlings or panels that have been uh, substituted from uh, a, a a pool we we often share spares with other airlines and sometimes you might have a radome that's come from another airline it's the wrong color i always think that looks unprofessional and uh, i i dislike that sometimes the engine cowlings are from it with a different paint job and you go oh god that looks so nasty. <laughs> yeah it does look bad that's about yeah, that's about <laughs> the only time i ever dislike flying a particular uh, aircraft now and i quite enjoy looking around and going oh look what this one is oh it's uh, it's uh, uh, you know, got a name on it that uh, matches the registration. I think, oh, that's kind of cute. I quite like that. But, yeah, uh, you, 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 no, you guys, uh, I love that that you your airline does that. Uh, but we, I guess we, <laughs> I forgot how many we have in our fleet, but it's like hundreds yeah. of airplanes. I mean, just in my own fleet, it's almost 200. And then the whole airline combined, it's, I don't know, 600, 700 airframes or whatever. It's just a huge number of airplanes out there that... Um, but, uh, but I do notice like, you know, certain airplanes I'm taxiing around on and it feels like it has the luxury, the luxury glide, uh, suspension or something. And like, it's all nice and smooth and you're going over bumps and you hardly feel them. And then others, it's like, you know, you feel every single, uh, crack in the pavement. Um, and, uh, uh but I never make a mental note. Okay. Well, this is the one I really like because it does this really well or something I just never do it. <laughs> Well, this is not aviation related per se, but it's the same thing, um, which I didn't realize, um, but it's kind of the same topic. I was, when I was down in Charleston, I had the chance to see one of uh, my cousin's daughters swim, or not swim, uh, sail 
um, I should say, in the college sailing national championships. And these are all, you know, elite level sailors, but small, small boats, small craft, small watercraft. And every round that they go out and sail, they rotate boats because apparently there are boats that are better than others. And that's a way to level the playing field. So I just thought that was interesting. I had no idea. I just assumed everyone had their own boat. But when they go to different places, they use the boat at whatever club they're sailing at. And some are better than others. So everyone rotates around. Make it more fair, I suppose. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Let's see. You know, uh, was it last the last regular show, not the feedback extra, but the uh, the uh, two seventy eight, I believe, when uh, Dana and uh, Steph and I were together in Charlotte, and we were talking about um, asphalt and uh, the fact uh, that it's the at Gatwick the tarmac was getting warm or hot, and they were using water to cool it off and that kind of thing, and uh, so. We were discussing a little bit about uh, the term asphalt, or as Dana liked to say, asphalt. And uh, so I'm thinking, um, what ex- exactly is asphalt? And uh, so I, I decided I'm going to use my my smartphone to uh, ask Siri. Hey, Siri. Can you tell me about asphalt? I found something about asphalt on Wikipedia. Do you want me to read that to you? Yes, please. The word asphalt refers to a mixture of mineral aggregate and a bitumen, or tarmac, in common parlance. The word tar refers to the black viscous material obtained from the destructive distillation of coal and is chemically distinct from bitumen. In American English, bitumen is referred to as asphalt or asphalt cement in engineering jargon. In Australian English, bitumen is sometimes used as the generic term for road surfaces. In Canadian English, the word bitumen is used to refer to the vast Canadian deposits of extremely heavy crude oil, whilst asphalt is used for the the oil refinery product used to pave roads and manufacture roof shingles. Diluted bitumen, diluted with naphtha to make it flow in pipelines, is known as dilbit in the Canadian petroleum industry, whilst bitumen, upgraded to synthetic crude oil, is known as syncrude, and syncrude blended with bitumen is synbit. Tarmac, short for tar macadam, a portmanteau for tar penetration macadam, is a type of highway surface. Strictly speaking, tarmac refers to a material patented by Eckhart Purnell Hooley in 1901. The term is also used with varying degrees of correctness for a variety of other materials, including tar grouted macadam, tarbia, bitumen surface treatments, and even modern asphalt concrete. To try and clear up the confusion and get the terminology correct, bitumen is an oil product of the oil refining and petrochemical industries. Very basically, it is the thick, sticky residue goo that is left over when all useful fuel oils such as kerosene, petrol, diesel, etc. have been extracted by fractional distillation of a crude oil. Macadam is the process of binding together small aggregates, as pioneered by the legendary John McAdam in the 19th century. His work resulted in the development of tar-based McAdams, which became abbreviated to tarmac. Nowadays, we use bitumen from the oil industry rather than naturally occurring tar, and therefore we now have bitumen McAdam, or as we call it, bitmac. Asphalt, according to British and European definitions, is a mixture of bitumen and minerals. However, in the US, they use the term asphalt for what we in Britain and the rest of Europe refer to as bitumen. This is the source of much confusion amongst non-trade professionals as to what's what and what's not. I think I need to uh, go to the Apple store and visit the Genius Bar because Siri just took a really odd turn there. That didn't sound like Siri's voice at all. Oh, some echo there. (laughs) Oh, but... uh, 
Go ahead. I didn't notice that. I didn't know that the uh, old curmudgeon was a Wikipedia entry for so many things. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he's doing some moonlighting on the side for uh, Apple. <laughs> you know, actually, I tried it. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, there's going to be a quiz on that later for everyone listening. Um, stay tuned. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I tried to find out the specific reason uh, by asking my um, uh, gnome uh, in uh uh, air traffic control at Heathrow to find out what was going on at Gatwick and uh, all that Adam the Gnome could find out was that uh, uh, there was some um, a, a slightly damaged uh, surface that they were trying to protect in the very hot weather so perhaps they'd used a temporary uh-huh. repair uh, and uh, but of course uh, as you'll probably find out if you were to keep playing that Siri thing. Um, it depends what country you're in as to what type of uh, material you have and what temperature range your tarmac or asphalt will work in. So if you're in a very cold country, you don't want it to break up when it freezes. If you're in a very hot country, you don't want it to uh, melt when it gets to a very high temperature. So they do actually bind it with uh, slightly different uh, materials so that it will uh, be firm and usable in the temperature range that is common in your climate. So in a temperate country like the UK, it'll be, uh, it'll allow for a lower temperature range than it would say in the south of America, where it would need to be able to cope with a higher temperature range. If it starts to exceed that temperature range, then of course you need to do something about it. Because uh, as we all know, uh, a big heavy airplane sitting on little tires will sink into the tarmac if it gets too hot and uh, once they left grooves there if it gets cool again those grooves will set and you'll have a permanent <laughs> indentation in your tarmac so uh, that's probably Ooh. again what they were doing now parking. that sounds painful and it's all very well for people who live in hot countries to make fun of the uk when they're having to cool their tarmac but you your tarmac doesn't freeze very often hey buddy cool your tarmac exactly um, Nina says, uh, well, hmm, in geologic terms, wouldn't your crack count as asphalt? <laughs> <laughs> she spelled that phonetically, by the way. Um, don't want to emphasize that too much. I'm going to leave Neville's <laughs> comment on red, but, um, let me, let me take a look at, uh, Nev's comment, trying to find it. There's so many comments in here. No, it's not. It's near the bottom. Uh, yeah, that's what she said. That's what she said. <laughs> Firm and unstable. Thank you for reading that out. Yes, another Ron oh, Jeremy unusable. reference. Firm Got it. Firm and unusable. No, usable. Uh, unusable. Firm and usable. Oh, another usable. Ron Jeremy reference. <laughs> you know, actually, oh, I, do have the glasses on. I actually learned something. I actually listened to what you, were, uh, what Old Curmudgeon <laughs> was saying uh, on that, and uh, I, I, some some nuggets of uh, information I thought were pretty cool, like uh, Tar Mac Adam. Tar Mac Adam, whatever that's at, well, the what we call tarmac. I had no idea. The, yeah, well, no, it was all very interesting. We have to listen again because it was a lot of information, and I was not taking notes. But um, <laughs> what? More, more to asphalt than I thought. <laughs> yes, a lot more, and bitumen, and uh, all the other words that were used I there. Never heard that word before, by the way. So eh. interesting. Hey, um, Steph, I uh, was thinking yes. maybe about. Uh, taking on the uh, piece of feedback that we received from Stephen Ivey 
Um, uh-huh. I thought at first that it was uh, he, he was just trolling us and and uh, kind of complaining about our show because he basically said uh, this is Stephen Ivy. What an idiot! <laughs> and then <laughs> I realized it wasn't referring to any it's of us. <laughs> so, do you want to uh, go ahead and uh, maybe take a take this one on? Sure, I can do this. This is general aviation related, so I'll be happy to. Um, now, you don't have to do the whole thing I, because it's a very long I'll story. I'll try to paraphrase. Yeah. I've actually read all of this and I'm familiar with the story. So It's amazing. I haven't read it for a little while, but yeah. bear with me. I'll, I'll try and sure. give you the Cliff Notes condensed version because um, there's a lot to it and it's it's pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, this is a um, – Stephen says, this is a good lesson on how to be a bad pilot. Um, And that may be a little bit of an understatement here. Um, The name of the article is, he's a terror in a twin. And sometimes it's obvious how an accident report is going to go from the very, going to end from the very first sentence. Um, So this uh, particular incident, um, the NTSB says the airplane owner, who was a non-instrument rated private pilot and did not hold a multi-engine airplane rating was conducting a visual flight rules personal cross-country flight in the multi-engine airplane so just take that nugget and then imagine in your head how this is going to end um it's not good by the way so uh this was a a pilot who had a private pilot certificate with a single engine land airplane rating um so to avoid any doubt that means he can fly single engine airplanes on land in clear weather no multi-engine aircraft, no flying in clouds. So, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff here that I'm going to skip through just a little bit. But uh, uh, da, 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 da. it looks like he had about 800 hours total time. Um, 255 were listed in single-engine aircraft and 218 in multi-engine airplanes, interestingly enough. But apparently he had quite a background. Didn't he fly F-4 Phantoms? Well, his, the daughter said that he flew F-4 Phantoms in... Um, and he told a Big Bear employee uh, at the airport there in Big Bear that he flew Phantoms yep. and then transitioned to helicopters. And <laughs> and so this guy was in the U.S. military, but in the Marine Corps as a Lance Corporal and no record of any military flights at all. <laughs> so we're not sure how that information about flying F-4 Phantoms came to be. Um, he's exaggerating a little bit. He's exaggerating a little bit. He's got an entry in his logbook showing 10 and a half hours of flying a Piper Apache twin engine with a total multi-engine flight time of 150 hours. Um, Not sure how that that happened either. Um, He has a couple of other interesting entries in his logbook. Flew over parade 10 feet off ground, made six passes. Uh, Landed on Route 66 for July parade with Mare. (laughs) Um, Flew to the barn, landed on Route 66 for auto show. Um, not sure why he's landing on Route 66 so often. Um, another entry, Big Bear Air Show, made it. Speed passes over runway. Um, there's a, anyway, I'm going to skip down to the day of the, uh, the incident here because there's all kinds of questionable stuff about this pilot, which is just serving to build up the fact that we're not sure why he's doing the things he's doing in the airplanes that he probably shouldn't be flying or definitely should not be flying in the first place. Um, So on the day before the accident, it says this was the 4th of September, 2015. Pilot fueled up the aircraft. This was a, um, actually, I don't know if it says what we're flying here at the moment, but we'll we'll get to that. So he was flying a plane. He fueled it up. Um, Was it a 310, Cessna 310? It was a Cessna 310. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Cessna 310. Um, So he 
departed Big Bear City Airport, 6.15 in the morning, arrived at Barstow Daggett Airport at 6.30 to pick up passengers. His plan was then to fly to Amarillo, Texas by following Interstate 40. They would have dinner in Amarillo and return to this, return the same day. Uh, there was another pilot on board and they had GPS. Um, a staff member remembered that they were they departed pretty early in the morning. Um, he appears to have picked up his passengers as planned at Daggett, California. And then he continued with four souls on board to Flagstaff where he wanted to refuel before continuing. His first contact with air traffic control that day was to contact Flagstaff Tower. Uh, so he says, Flagstaff Tower, this is Piper Comanche, November 1099 Zulu. I'm sorry, Quebec. Uh, we're approximately 30 miles west of the field. Anybody know what the weather is down there you socked in? Because we are flying over the top here. Uh so who's writing this article says, now I generally don't like to pick on GA to pilots radio telephony and Lord knows I've made more than my share of bad radio calls. But as a starting point, there's a lot wrong here. First off, his identification is wrong. The Piper or the aircraft is not a Piper Comanche, which is a single engine, small airplane. It's a Cessna 310, different model, different make, different number of engines. He then got his call sign wrong and then corrected it without repeating it, which is a bit confusing. He asks, you socked in there? Not quite standard terminology, but not unreasonable for a U.S. airport. If an airport is socked in, it means that it is closed because of bad weather. And finally, flying over the top means he's flying above the clouds, out of sight of the ground. Rules differ by country as to whether a visual pilot can fly on top of the clouds, presuming he didn't fly through the clouds to get there. Um, and in the U.S., VFR on top is fine as long as you don't need to pass through the clouds and are not a student pilot. So that we'll just clarify that for U.S. flying. Flagstaff Tower responds. They say, uh, Comanche 1099 Quebec, Flagstaff Tower, we are open. The uh, the ANUS is also broadcasting. We're 900 broken, 1600 broken, 2400 overcast, visibility 10. Translation, the airfield's open, and you should have gotten this information by listening to the Automatic Terminal Information Service. This is a continual broadcast of airport and weather information on a specific frequency. When you fly into a busy airport, you listen to the ATIS. I will say Flagstaff's not terribly bu busy having lived there, but they do have a tower and ATIS information, which you can certainly get without having to ask for it. Um, so going on. Um, so <laughs> it's, you know, we've got the weather there. So it's it's overcast 2,400 feet with some broken layers below that. So no wonder uh, the Comanche, sorry, no, I mean the Cessna can't see the ground. Uh, November one. 099 Quebec says, oh, thank you. I just tuned the ATIS then. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Flagstaff. At least he understood the issue. Um, and then he says, Flagstaff Tower, uh, 1099 Quebec, about to land. We're approximately 10 miles west of the airport. <laughs> Bet that about to land woke up, woke up the controller. Uh, Flagstaff Tower responds, Comanche, 99 Quebec, Flagstaff Tower, the uh, we're IFR, the airport, 900 broken, 1600 broken, visibility 10. Uh he comes back and says, okay, now we're approximately 8,000 feet. We have a visibility looks like greater than 10 miles. Uh, so at 8,000 feet, he possi can't possibly have the ground in sight. There's three layers of clouds below him. His horizontal visibility may be 10 miles, but that's not useful. Flying under visual flight rules, he still can't descend through the clouds. Flagstaff Tower says, I concur with the visibility. Uh, are you requesting something special? Uh, and then he says, uh, the field's now VFR. So the Flagstaff Tower comes back and says, field is VFR. The ceiling is, uh, well, I have a scattered layer of 1200, ceiling 1600, report right base for runway 21. So the controller's happy that uh, this pilot can come in under visual flight rules. It's now scattered, and he asks the pilot to let him know when he's on a right base, which means he will be one turn before final coming in from the right side of the, the runway. So this is uh, 
and then he re he the the pilot actually acknowledges this and straightforward um flagstaff tower asks him to verify that he has information charlie which is the ADIS information and uh 99 Quebec says, copy that. We've got a little bit of a mm, blank here. <laughs> Not sure what that means. Um, Flagstaff Tower says, uh, Roger, uh, the wind 220 at 8, temperature 16, density altitude 8,400. Flagstaff's at over 7,000 feet elevation for anyone who's not familiar with the area. Um, dew point 13, altimeter 3026. So all that's relevant inf- information for landing. Uh, November uh, 99 Quebec says, thank you. And... Uh, <laughs> the person writing this article says, "I am," and this is uh, from Fear of Landing, by the way. Which we yeah, talked about that's how I found out about this uh, site. <laughs> uh, this, this, is, this is very good. Yeah. Um, says I imagine the controller's voice getting a wee bit stressed by now as he cricks the pilot. Bear in mind, the pilot should have already had this set up after listening to the ATIS. Um, November one zero nine nine Quebec again says, "Flagstaff Tower, this is Quebec. We're uh, going to report left base runway two one. Just wanted to confirm that Quebec." left base uh, some airports have right and left hand circuits here's a quick sketch to show you how this might look there's a, a picture so you can imagine uh, i think most people listening to this even without a diagram or a picture would know what a right hand traffic pattern might be to an to a runway or versus a left hand so you're coming in either from the right or from the left pretty straightforward so uh flagstaff tower says uh, are you set up for a right base or a left base you're coming from the west you said uh 99 Quebec. Oh, it's showing left base on my GPS. Left traffic on runway 21? Hmm. Uh, Flagstaff Tower says, uh, we can make whichever way you want. I just need to know which direction you're coming from. <laughs> Our Flagstaff always this laid back because I'd be having kittens right now, is what fearflying.com <laughs> says. Uh, 99 Quebec says, well, we're coming from 270 right now. Uh, 270 degrees is west. Sure enough, the aircraft is traveling due east, coming in from the west. Got it. Uh, <laughs> So from 270, you should be west of the airport. Well, where was the destination you left from? Uh, 99 Quebec says, well, we can report. Let's see. Um, the winds are from what? Uh, mm. <laughs> no, the answer is Barstow Daggett Airport. That was the question that was asked. Um, so this goes on, goes on, goes on. Uh, let me get down to where it's a little more because there's a lot of this. Um, so Flagstaff finally says... Um, Okay, we have runway 21. Okay, I see you now. You are in a left downwind for runway 21, cleared to land, wind 2108. So the Flagstaff Tower is like, all right, I got it. Whatever you're doing, just get on the ground, get here now, because I'm kind of stressed out about you doing all this weird stuff that I didn't ask you to, to do. Uh, so cleared to land, runway 21, and to the relief of everyone, they they land. So um, Flagstaff Tower wants to know if they're going to the FBO, and he says, yes, we want to gas up. Can we exit? So they do all of this. They get to the FBO. They um, gas up, and then I think they take on extra passengers. There's a whole lot more information here, but um, or whatever passengers they had got off. There were several people in the aircraft with this pilot at, at one point um, before they leave again. Um, after the Cessna had vacated the runway and stopped... Uh, the pilot had a lengthy conversation with the controller in which he explained that he wasn't aware there was a problem because his radio had not been turned on. Oh, oh, sorry. This is, I skipped ahead of some, some important stuff here. Uh, let me back up. So, yes. So next they're going to Amarillo, Texas, which, um, from Flagstaff, Arizona is to the Southeast. Um, so the pilot, uh, calls for an abbreviated weather briefing, um, which he described as a visual flight from Flagstaff to Amarillo. Um, and the airport with identifier uh, Tango Delta Whiskey. Um, however, the pilot identified his destination as Lima 51, which is Heller Farm Airport in Winifred, Montana. Mm. 
That's about a thousand miles to the north of Amarillo. Uh, so the weather briefer caught the error and gave the pilot the correct weather for the airport in Amarillo, Texas. After it was fueled and everyone was back on board, they started up the engines, began to taxi without any contact to air traffic control, taxied right past the tower, turned right onto the main runway or main taxiway, and continued directly towards runway 21, where SkyWest Flight 2992 was on short final and cleared to land. The tower, receiving no reply from the Cessna, issued a go-around to the SkyWest flight. The airliner broke off its approach as the Cessna taxied onto the runway. Uh, Cessna positioned itself and started a takeoff roll as the pilot made the first call to air traffic control. So this guy's on the runway <laughs> making a starting starting his takeoff roll and just then decides, oh, maybe I should talk to the that's, tower. That's normal, this. isn't it? Um, no, no, definitely. Definitely. No. Um, so the tower, uh, the uh, tower controller, not surprisingly, was unimpressed. He instructed the Cessna to abort the takeoff and exit the runway immediately. They then had a lengthy conversation in which the pilot explained that he wasn't aware there was a problem because his radio had not been turned on. <laughs> then he was told to phone the tower. Um, yes, that's that's normally what will happen. Skywest came back in and landed safely, although the flight crew did make a nervous call to ask what the heck just happened. They were told it was a case of situational awareness. Uh, or lack thereof. Lack thereof. So, um, after their phone conversation, um, pilot of this uh, Cessna 310 gives it another go, gets onto the runway, takes off with no further issue. Uh, they remained low as they departed from the runway from runway 21. After about a thousand feet, Cessna went into a climb, entered a left turn, heading northeast. Again, Amarillo is actually due east of Flagstaff. Actually, I, didn't, I thought it was more to the southeast, but yeah, due east. So they're going wrong direction. After they departed, radar data. Radar data showed that the aircraft was turned again towards the north rather than uh, east. Uh, they continued to fly towards Montana, and the weather began to close in. They would have been flying into rain showers and in instrument meteorological conditions, which no one in the aircraft was qualified for. Um, the following day, pilot's daughter became concerned as she had not heard from her father. The aircraft wreckage with no survivors was discovered in Colorado at 11,500 feet on the side of a mountain. They had flown directly into the rising terrain at high speed. So, um, yeah, a whole lot of uh, not good stuff going on here. Um, I don't even have, I don't even have a lot of commentary on this because I think the story speaks just very much for itself. And it's a prime example of what not to do if you are a private pilot with a single engine certificate and no instrument certification. Yeah, just it's there are so many things wrong with everything that this gentleman did that it's hard to know where to start. But they said that this this new handheld GPS that he had uh, that he was navigating with um, and led him into the Colorado mountains. Uh, the reason for that is that he kept uh, thinking he was going to the airfield identifier Lima 51. And in fact, he was trying to go to Tango Delta Whiskey, I believe it was, mm -hmm. for uh, Amarillo. And they said um, they, they were kind of scratching their heads. What? Why was he calling it L-51? He said, well, on the Amarillo chart, there is one reference to L-51. It's the length of the runway, 5,100 feet. So he's looking at the chart. He sees L-51 thinking that's the identifier. And oh, so L-51, as Steph mentioned, is up in Montana somewhere, not in Texas. And uh, just uh, amazing uh, how the, you know, ridiculous. I think the this best line of this article is at the very end, though, where Fear Flying says, the truth is, I'm simply surprised that he survived that long with his whole flying career. Yeah. Because so, if this is representative of what he was doing every time he was out, that's 
an amazing stroke of good luck to have made it so far. Yep. And Tanya makes a super good point. Uh, lots of stupidity, but also highlights the issue of blindly following a GPS. And we had talked about this, I believe it was on the last show where we talked about the fact that there was a student pilot who was watching some like Dateline NBC, NBC and the student pilot you know, entered a, a wrong digit for the track or uh, course of her flight. And she was going a completely the opposite direction, flying into uh, high mountainous terrain in Wyoming. And uh, she crashed, but luckily she survived. Yeah, it has to all make sense. You know, technology is wonderful, but you have to be the human on the other side of it, making sure that it computes. Because if you enter it wrong, if it's human error to begin with, um, the computer doesn't know that. And it will, if you're going to just follow it blindly after that, it will tell you exactly where it thinks you're supposed to go or where you want to go. And that may be right into the side of a mountain. So, yeah. Yes. Well, I feel sorry for the uh, the innocent passengers yes, that were absolutely. That perished. You know, in and, and you wonder, well, how could, how do they not know anything was going on? Well, if you're not a pilot and you're not familiar with what's going on, um, you know, it's, it's hard to maybe know. Yeah, you think that just may be how things go? That's, Obviously, it's uh, it sounds like jargon, technical jargon. I don't know is being discussed, and uh, he seems to know what he's talking about and knows how to operate the airplane. So yeah, let's go to Amarillo. He flew F fours when he was in the Marine Corps. Exactly, should know what he's doing, right? Mm. Okay, if he actually yeah, flew F fours when he was a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps. <laughs> Special program. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of there was a lot of. Uh, talk i think with this article came out about how did the flagstaff tower not stop him from going but they they really can't you know no they don't have enforcement no there's no enforcement there they can they can make a lot of strong recommendations but you know and they can you know if there was a violation that occurred that can be something that's sanctioned but it's not going to happen right there then in that instant so they're on their way yeah a sad story but um We'll put the entire um, the link uh, to uh, Shirley Wrigley's uh, fear of flying blog in the uh, show notes, and and it turns out that that's earlier we t- I had talked about this, uh, you know, talking about Amelia Earhart and getting on her mailing list, and now I realize how I discovered her. It was through Stephen Ivey's reference to this article in uh, her blog, so I highly recommend uh, reading it and signing up for her email notifications. And again, all that will be in the show notes. And uh, now I think it'd be a good time for us to have this week's segment or installment of Plain Tales. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, the Maverick of Malta. In a peacetime Air Force, such words as insubordinate, reckless, lacking respect, Impatient, uncontrollable, loner and misfit would mark the end of a pilot's career. In war, however, a Nelson's eye is often turned to such men, particularly when they become the RAF's second most decorated pilot of World War II. Such a man was Adrian Warburton, better known to his friends as Warby. By the end of his short wartime career, he would have been awarded the Distinguished Service Order twice and the Distinguished Flying Cross no less than three times. In addition, and most unusually, he was also awarded the American Distinguished Flying Cross. His time in the RAF, however, did not start smoothly. 
The son of a naval officer, he was born in Middlesbrough and christened on board a submarine in the Grand Harbour of Valletta in Malta. He was schooled at St Edward's in Oxford, where two other famous airmen of the Second World War were educated. Guy Gibson, who led 617 Squadron on the Dambusters raid, and Douglas Bader, the legless fighter pilot. Warby joined the RAF in 1939, but his flying training didn't go particularly well and he nearly failed to make the grade. Starting off on 608 Squadron, he was flying Blackburn Bothers, aircraft patrolling the North Sea, but his outspoken criticism of this obsolete machine, combined with his complete lack of discipline, gambling debts and a disastrously short marriage to a barmaid without official sanction, saw him being posted to Malta as an observer, not a pilot. As his wife, who never saw him again, said a few years ago when being told of his exploits, I never knew this man. I only knew a handsome, nervous young boy. Malta turned him into a man. He joined the pitifully small RAF detachment on the tiny island and within four days he regained his pilot status, while back in the UK his previous station commander was short-toured and removed from flying duties. It was on 413 flight that he blossomed as a pilot and his true worth began to shine through, but it was not a smooth road to success. He was renowned for mishandling the aircraft on takeoff or landing. On one departure, he tore a wheel off, and on another, he ran down the line of gooseneck flares marking the edge of the runway, setting his aircraft alight. His ground crew rightly referred to his hopeless landings as arrivals. However, a bit like an ungainly albatross, desperately flapping its feet trying to get off the water, once airborne he transformed into a magical pilot. His aircraft was the American-designed twin-engined Martin Maryland, a reconnaissance and light bomber, which, despite its light armament, he flew bravely and with aggression in equal quantities. Rarely signing the Form 700, the aircraft's technical log, he launched himself on increasingly daring sorties, overflying and photographing enemy forces in North Africa and Italy. Rather than just getting his photos and scuttling straight back to his base, Warby soon had two enemy kills to his name. On the first occasion, he shot down an Italian Cant three-engined seaplane, but only a few days after, he was attacked by four Italian fighters. He successfully evaded them until he was struck in the head by a ricochet and knocked unconscious. His aggression had ensured that the Italians disengaged from the attack, allowing his observer, Sergeant Bastard, to fly the aircraft until Warburton recovered enough to land his machine. Bastard received the Distinguished Flying Medal, and Warby was awarded his first DFC, with the citation reading, This officer has carried out numerous long-distance reconnaissance flights and has taken part in night air combats. On October 1940, he destroyed an aircraft, and again in December, he shot down an enemy bomber in flames. Flying Officer Warburton has at all times displayed a fine sense of devotion to duty. It's hard for us to understand the hardships that the people of Malta were suffering. 
despite its strategic importance, the defence of the island was woefully inadequate, and particularly in the early part of the war, whilst Britain fought for its very survival, Malta only received the dregs of what was available. It was well within the range of Italian and German bombers, which pounded the rock day after day. Indeed, twice as many bombs fell on Malta in two months than fell on London during a year of the Blitz. Warby was becoming a bit of a celebrity amongst the war-torn inhabitants of the island, who were happy to hear anything that might cheer them up a little. When he became intimately involved with the beautiful singer Christina Ratcliffe, their love story was widely reported in the Maltese newspapers. Christina had come to the island to perform in cabaret and entertain the troops with her group, the Whizbangs. Their first meeting was love at first sight, and she admitted that, with his golden hair and beautiful blue eyes, Warby resembled a Greek god. His love affair didn't become a distraction, however, and he continued to push his luck in daring missions, usually a lone aircraft well away from Malta's meagre fighter cover. His bravery in ensuring his vital reconnaissance flights were completed was soon to be recognised with the award of his second Distinguished Flying Cross. This officer is a most determined and skilful pilot, his citation read, and he has carried out 125 operational missions. Flying Officer Warburton has never failed to complete the missions he has undertaken, and in the actions fought, he has destroyed at least three hostile aircraft in combat and another three on the ground. This bar to Warby's first DFC wasn't achieved without considerable personal risk, as he twice crashed and was nearly shot down by a hurricane from his own side when his Maryland was mistaken for a JU-88. However, his guardian angel was on the ball, and he walked away every time. One of the concerns of the Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet was the whereabouts of the Italian Navy, and when 431 flights spotted a major concentration of enemy battleships at Taranto, Admiral Cunningham decided on a night attack by his swordfish torpedo bombers. Warburton flew the reconnaissance mission on the day before the attack, making repeated passes, and when his cameras failed, he flew past the ship so low and so close that his observer was able to read the names of the battleships. He came home with a length of aerial from one of the ships lodged in his tailwheel. The Distinguished Service Order that followed his missions over Taranto came with the following citation. This officer has carried out many missions, each of which has demanded the highest degree of courage and skill. On one occasion, whilst carrying out a reconnaissance of Taranto, Flight Lieutenant Warburton made two attempts to penetrate the harbour, although, as there was much low cloud, this entailed flying at a height of 50 feet over an enemy battleship. In spite of the failure of his port engine and repeated attacks from enemy aircraft, he completed his mission and made a safe return. On another occasion, he obtained photographs of Tripoli in spite of enemy fighter patrols over the harbour. 
In March 1942, Flight Lieutenant Warburton carried out a reconnaissance of Palermo and obtained photographs revealing the damage caused by our attacks. This officer has never failed to obtain photographs from a very low altitude regardless of enemy opposition. His work has been most valuable and he has displayed great skill and tenacity. After a long period of operations, Warby was rested, but after a promotion, he returned to fly further missions over North Africa and Italy. While on detachment in Egypt, he managed to acquire a Bristol Bowfighter heavy fighter. Stripping the aircraft of all guns and armour, he equipped it with cameras and took the aeroplane back to Malta. He flew the aircraft for about a year until it was finally destroyed in a raid. He continued to attack whenever he saw an opportunity. On one recce mission over Africa, he approached a new Italian airstrip, he lowered his wheels as if to land, and then opened fire, destroying three SM-79 bombers before accelerating away. In fact, Warburton shot down nine enemy aircraft, becoming an ace while still flying his Maryland light bomber. On another occasion, when attacking an Italian seaplane, Warby was hit under the heart by the rear gunner. Part of the cockpit and the gun turret blew off. An engine failed and the aircraft caught fire. Somehow he regained control, but was obviously in pain. The following conversation passed into RAF legend. Paddy Moran, his air gunner, asked, You okay, skipper? Warburton replied, yes, I'm fine now. But, Skipper, what are you doing? I'm extracting a bullet from my chest. Another story from Paddy Moran had them in neutral Tangiers, picking up a new aircraft from Gibraltar. They were in civilian clothes for a night out, and sitting in a nightclub when a waiter brought over a tray of drinks. Warburton's crew went... Ah, lovely. Who are they from? Compliments of the Luftwaffe, sir, answered the waiter, pointing to a table of German pilots, also in civilian clothes nearby. That was a brilliant evening, I can tell you, said Paddy Moran years later. His second tour finished, Warby was promoted to squadron leader and given command of 683 Squadron. He was soon recognised again with his third DFC. It read, Since August 1942, this officer has completed numerous operational photographic sorties, many of them at low altitude and often in the face of opposition from enemy fighters. His work has been of the utmost value. In October 1994, his gallantry was well illustrated when he directed an enemy destroyer to a dinghy in which were the crew of one of our aircraft which had been shot down. Although he was fired upon by the destroyer and engaged by Italian aircraft, he remained over the area until he observed that the drifting crew were picked up by the destroyer. His work now included vital pre-invasion reconnaissance of the landing beaches in Sicily. He coordinated the photographic work with the local American forces, who were amazed at the much-decorated officer who came out to greet them at Luca Airfield. As usual, he was attired in dirty grey flannels, an oil-stained tunic, and topped by a mop of long, unkempt blonde hair.
He had just returned from the dead after being missing for three days. Whilst photographing Biarritz, his plane was disabled by flak. He'd struggled on to Bona in Algeria and landed unhurt. After being kept under lock and key for two days, suspected of being a German agent, he was able to establish that he was British and was given a French plane to fly to Gibraltar. There, he changed it for a Spitfire and flew back to Malta, returning to Bona on the way to pick up his cameras and film and shooting down a Ju-88 on the way. When he landed at Malta, his first remark was, Sorry, I'm late. His work photographing the coast of Sicily was exceptional, since it had to be flown from very low level and under continuous fire from the coastal defences. The Americans were highly impressed and awarded him the United States Armed Services Distinguished Flying Cross. He was promoted a wing commander and given the command of a wing of four photo-reconnaissance squadrons. And before long, he was awarded his second DSO. This officer has undertaken a very large number of reconnaissance flights over a wide range of targets in the Middle East theatre. His work throughout has been of the highest order, and the information he has obtained has proved of incalculable value. On one occasion, in December 1942, he made a low-level flight over Naples and achieved success in the face of heavy anti-aircraft fire and fighter opposition. Wing Commander Warburton's great courage and devotion to duty were well illustrated during a reconnaissance of Pantelira in May 1943. Although his aircraft was continually subjected to fire from the coastal batteries, he skillfully accomplished his task, securing information of the highest importance. Wing Commander Warburton's record of operational flying is outstanding. Sadly, he was injured in a serious car accident and was forced to return to England to recover in hospital. However, he was soon back at work whilst his injuries healed as the RAF liaison officer to the 7th Photo Reconnaissance Group of the US 8th Army Air Force at RAF Mount Farm in Oxfordshire. He had become friends with the base commander, Elliot Roosevelt, the son of the president, and when an important mission came up, he persuaded Roosevelt to let him fly one of the American P-38 Lightnings to photograph targets in Germany. Although not officially fit to fly, he departed as one of a pair of aircraft. Over Germany, they split up to cover different targets, but at their RV, Warby failed to turn up and was never seen again. Only recently was his crash site found, along with his remains still in the cockpit of his Lightning. He was initially buried as an unknown American airman, but when records revealed that it had been Wing Commander Warburton in the aircraft, he was reburied at the Dernbach Commonwealth War Cemetery in the shadow of the Bavarian Alps. One of his surviving friends said, Warby was never a swaggerer. There was some jealousy about his awards, but he never cared about medals. He was driven by an absolute determination to get the job done. But perhaps the greatest tribute came from Lord Tedder, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, who once described him as the most valuable pilot 
in the Royal Air Force. Wow. What a story. Was this guy just extremely lucky or extremely skilled or both? What uh, What do you say? I think you're right, Jeff. A bit of both. Uh, I know. Uh, I, I must admit, I, I was sadly ignorant of uh, his career until Adam pointed it out to me. And when I read it, I, I was this this can't be right but when you when i got hold of all his citations and realized that wow this bloke from being, being such an appalling rebel uh he was not fond of discipline he was you know he refused to take orders but when you gave him a task and if he assumed it was important enough he risked life and limb to go out and do it and he did it brilliantly talking about uh, the definition of um mission-oriented. Oh, very much so. Very much so. But one of those classic pilots that could not have done his job if we hadn't been at war, because the establishment would no. never have put up with it. And what is it that uh, Micah said in the chat room? Uh, you know, you don't hear bomber pilot and ace usually in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And apparently he used to fly that uh, Maryland bomber as if it was a fighter. He used to throw it around the sky like nobody's business. Very impressive. Wow. That's amazing. Very entertaining again. Uh, thank you, Adam Spink, for the, uh, for the idea and uh, for the flawless execution by... Captain Nick. Oh, you're very welcome, sir. All right. Um, speaking of Micah, you know, I just mentioned he was uh, with us here in the chat room. Uh, and our uh, meetup um, just a few days ago. Uh, and we thought we were going to be recording um, the uh, this episode, actually, uh, on Thursday in Micah's kitchen studio. But instead, we had the meetup and uh, just worked out that the uh, timing was best for us to record the show today, Saturday morning. But that didn't keep Micah and I from uh, getting together after the meetup and uh, sharing a beer and uh, talking. And there was something that he had prepared for us to play on episode 279 while we were recording in the kitchen studio. And we're going to play it anyway. And uh, let's see. No, we don't um, hear you, Steph. You're muted. Nope, we don't hear you now either. <laughs> Darn it. She. By the way, during uh, Plain Tales, Steph uh, ended up rebooting. Uh, because she was having some issues with her computer and internet and that kind of thing. And apparently <laughs> not everything is recovering, but uh, she'll work on that. And while she does, let's listen to this uh, piece of audio feedback that uh, Micah sent in. Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Sure. It's a radio show about car repair and has been since 1991. More recently, it's been a podcast too. And I highly recommend it. I've been listening to The Car Doctor from the beginning. But to say the show is a call-in show about car repair is like saying the airline pilot guy is about three or four people talking about airplanes. It's much more than that, and really deserves a listen. I know you'll enjoy it, whether you're interested in auto repair or not. Ron has been my mechanic, or maybe I should say auto technician, for years, both in person and on the air. I'm proud to say he's also my friend. Ron's Uncle Steve has been a hero of mine for a long time. I never met Uncle Steve, but he was a P-51 Mustang pilot back in World War II. 
Uncle Steve was a regular Memorial Day guest on Ron and Anian's A Car Doctor. Steve wrote a terrific booklet titled Ramrod to Munster about his first mission in his P-51. You can look it up online and still find it. Trust me, it's worth the effort. I always wanted to interview Uncle Steve. Tried to arrange it a couple of times to get him on a podcast, but it never worked out. I started to grow concerned about it. You see, Uncle Steve just celebrated his 95th birthday, and I was worried that I might not get my chance to talk with him. Well, as you can probably tell, my concerns were real. Steve and Anian recently passed in his sleep. As a tribute to him, his nephew, my friend Ron and Anian, the car doctor, played a highlight reel of sorts on his show. It's taken from Uncle Steve's many appearances. It's with Ron's permission we bring it to you now. What a life. Uncle Steve, 95, gone in his sleep. This is First Lieutenant Stephen Ananian. God bless. We were escorting the bombers to Munster, and uh, escorting bombers is called a ramrod mission. So uh, on the way, uh, I was flying over Holland, on the, over Heligoland, actually, and uh, that's the uh, German uh, West Point for anti-aircraft gunners, and I got hit by one anti-aircraft uh, gun, and I was hitting the supercharger of the aircraft, and I uh, 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 flew my airplane, losing airplane, uh, uh, losing oil for about 45 minutes until I finally had a bailout over the North Sea. And at that time, there was gale warnings over the North Sea with 75-mile winds and 10-foot uh, uh, waves. And so, uh, but I uh, bailed out and uh, was in the water for an hour and a half, and I was rescued by a, a British Air Sea Rescue flying boat. And uh, uh, I got back, naturally, and... Uh, I flew 63 missions after that. Did you did you hesitate going up the second time, Uncle Steve? From what I from what I remember, they they offered you a couple of days off leave up in London, and you said, "Heck no, I want to go." That's right. I uh, I I, wa- I went the very next mission that they flew. So uh, uh, no, I, uh, I I I I I was afraid when I flew, but uh, the fear my fear was not of getting killed, but I was afraid I'd screw up. I mean, that's, this is what every pilot did. I mean, uh, you, you, you had to respect what the uh, enemy had to offer. You, you really had a mindset. That whole generation had a mindset as the mindset of all the generations have, have, have come and gone since that, you know, it, it really is a dedication to duty, um, uh, for, for someone to march off to defend the country. And, that's really what Memorial Day is all about. It's it's not about it's not you know, about anything else. I'd like to tell you something. Uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December seventh. At that time, it was a Sunday. I was a student at NYU. In fact, I when I heard about it, I was working out in a gym at NYU. And when I heard the news, I went rushing home to tell my family that the, what happened, and also to explain to my parents that I was going to go off and join the Army. I was going to become an aviation cadet. And uh, when we, I got home, uh, we were having, uh, in those days, we used to have uh, early dinner, you know, and lunch. Uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, Sunday. And so uh, after uh, dinner, I said to my father, I'd like to talk to your dad and say, well, we used to go in the living room and he would bring his coffee and his cigarettes and uh, I would bring my glass of milk uh, into the living room and I'm preparing to tell him that I'm going to join uh, the uh, aviation cadets. And uh, I was stammering around and my father turns around and says to me, son, your country needs you. What are you going to do about it? And that was the way it was. And I said, I'm going to join, uh, join up with the Army Air Corps. And the next day, I went to Grand, Palace, uh, Grand Central Palace in New York on December 8th, and I enlisted in the Army. Uh, that was the story. Of it. It, it, it kind of clicked in place for you. I constantly get emails from all over the world from people. When I say constantly, I'm talking about at least one or two a week from uh, Europe, from uh, Czechoslovakia, from, from the, uh, I shouldn't say Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic. Right. I mean, uh, it's been a long time since uh, uh, it was Czechoslovakia. But uh, the letters I get thanking us and they they make uh, they ask about people that were members of our unit that were shot down uh, and were killed uh, over their countries, and they uh, have put up memorials uh, at the sites uh, uh, with uh, placing flowers there on every holiday and every special occasion. I mean. Uh, the people around the world really appreciate what we've done, and I uh, uh, and we uh, should ponder what these people did for us. You know, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, the Eighth Air Force, the losses of our Air Force of our group was two thirds, sixty-six percent. That means two out of three guys just didn't get back, and. Uh, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world. Uh, I flew 63 combat missions and uh, uh, was shot down on my first mission. Went down in the North Sea in the icy winter waters of the North Sea during a gale. And uh, uh, I'm uh, here 92 years old plus. Uh, I'm still surviving. Yeah, well. I'm still going to reunions. And still driving my car and uh, getting to fly airplanes and stuff like that. And uh, when I got over Paris, I flew along the Champs Elysees with my uh, wingman flying my wing about 50 feet off the ground. And all the people were waving at us and we were just smiling and laughing. And, uh, and then we uh, turned at the end of the Champs Elysees is the uh, Palais de Chaillot. And I made a left turn, and there's the Eiffel Tower. We headed towards the Eiffel Tower, buzzed that, and then flew back to London. Now, during the war, uh, you couldn't fly over London because of the barrage balloons. But on VE Day, the barrage balloons were down. So we flew over Trafalgar Square, uh, very low, and spiraled upward over uh, Lord Nelson's statue and climbed up to 20,000 feet came back. And we came back and landed. When we landed, my commanding officer's uh, jeep came rush, roaring up to my airplane, and he jumped out. And he says, what the hell have you been doing? I said, what's the matter, sir? He says, the phone's been ringing off the hook 
about these red and white uh, checkered nosed uh, uh, P-47s buzzing all over France and England. And I said, that wasn't us. I said, we fly P-51. He says, baloney. He said, you, can, uh, uh, you know that no, those civilians don't. I know a P-51 from a P-47. Yeah, but still you... You climb into this I-86, and you're going to Scotland. So that was it. And that was it. Hey, real quick, Uncle Steve. Um, uh, You know, you named the plane Baby Mine. 30 seconds or less. How'd you come up with that name? Uh, Walt Disney's motion picture. uh, No, 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 uh, no. I don't want that uh, version. Had Dumbo in it, and he... And that picture, that was the famous song, and I... That song used to go run through my head when I was flying. Yeah, but wait a minute, Uncle I, Steve. That's the that's the family version. Wasn't there a story about when the girls in the bars in London would ask you, did you name your plane after me, and what did you tell them? That, that's right. I'd say I named it after you, baby. And they'd look at me and say, oh, come on, I yank. And I'd take out a picture of my airplane, and they, they believed it. And it said it was baby mine. Uncle, yeah. Uncle Steve, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm looking forward to seeing you in June. And um, we've got to go right now. I really want to say thanks for taking the time, and um, it's just a whole lot of fun to talk to you. I love oh, you. Can I say one thing? Sure. I just want to thank all these people in the service for uh, protecting us and giving us the freedom that we judge. And we're, uh, we're, our prayers are with all these people. Thank you. All gave some, some gave all. Uncle Steve, we'll, we look forward to talking to you again next year, if not sooner. You take good care. Listen, Uncle Steve, the clock's going to take me. I love you. I want to tell you how proud I am of you, as I always do and always am. And I just wanted to take that opportunity. I want to thank you for being with us today. And uh, the listeners really appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. And uh, I appreciate it, uh, being able to talk to your your uh, uh, listeners. Okay. Take care. You take good care, Uncle Steve. I'm Ron Anini in the car, Doctor. We'll be back right after this. So thank you, Uncle Steve. I'm sorry we never got to meet or got to talk. Sorry I never was able to get things organized in time. Thanks for your service and for your stories. Thanks for everything. Know that you're still here with us, even if only in spirit. And thanks, Ron and Anian. Thank you for your great work, both as a radio guy and podcaster, and as a shop owner and master mechanic. Thanks for being my friend and letting me share Uncle Steve with my friends here on the Airline Pilot Guy. So for the Airline Pilot Guy, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man. Micah. Wow, they they don't make guys like that anymore, do they? No, they they really don't, Jeff. And you know, when I uh when I recorded that piece, I thought that uh we were going to be able to do our uh the podcast together. At that point, we had it planned to uh, do it from the kitchen studios here in South Portland. Now, you and I are hanging out here in South Portland in the living room studio today, but uh unfortunately, the whole podcast couldn't come together. But I wanted to mention that you know, we, we just lost Uncle Steve, who was a World War II vet, and our Civil War vets, the last one uh, died, his name was uh, Albert Henry Wilson, and he died on uh, August 2nd in 1956, and the last World War I vet uh, lived till uh, February 4th, 2012. He was uh, from the UK, and his name was uh, Florence Green. Um, but, you know, we're getting to the point where we're starting to lose our World War I vets, and we really need to cherish them, and we need to be able to get those stories and all that great information and all the really wonderful stories, sad stories, amazing stories, but beautiful stories like we had from Uncle Steve. And so we just need to be aware of that now. And I, I wanted to bring that up so we could remember that. Well said. Well said. And I love that that whole piece and 
listening to Uncle Steve and his his stories and and that patriotism that he that he had and uh well as always we love all the pieces that you send us but uh, that was a, a, an especially um important one for us to hear my pleasure to send them to you and for those listening who may be looking for another podcast that might not be aviation related i do want to point out ron and anian who is a terrific podcaster he's been on the radio he started on wor new york back in 1991 it's on a number of different stations around the country but you can get him on a podcast ron and anian a n a ron and a n a i a n a-N-A-N-I-A-N, sorry. He's a terrific podcaster. He does, like I said earlier, he talks about automobiles the way you talk about airplanes. The Airline Pilot Guy show is much more than just airplanes, and The Car Doctor is much more than just cars. And uh, really worth giving it a listen. He's also an incredible master mechanic, and I've really been lucky to have him service up my vehicles a number of times. So thanks for having me on the show again. Absolutely, my pleasure. And it's great to be with you here in your living room studio. Yeah. Sorry it didn't work out for us recording in the kitchen studio today, but uh, we still had a great time. We're just back from a uh, a meetup uh, with uh, Mark, Mark Adams, Adams and, and, his and his lovely daughter, Carolyn. They drove down from Lewiston, Auburn, and, well, you know, chances are you've already heard the uh, audio from that little meetup. But uh, uh, so uh, they they took off, and and uh, Micah and I are, are here in his lovely home, and uh, just wanted to share that with you. Let's you and I have another beer. Nice. <laughs> so thanks, uh, Micah, for preparing that for us and uh, giving us a little glimpse into the life of uh, one of the great Americans there, Steve uh, Iranian. Um, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but Uncle Steve, let's call him. Uh, always uh, good to hear stories. Uh, well, like the the Maverick of Malta, and then uh, Steve, uh, Uncle Steve, and uh, his uh, gallantry and bravery and accomplishments in the war. I mean, I, I was just blown away by the fact that his first mission he he was uh, shot down, and he spent an hour and a half in the North Sea with ten foot uh, seas and seventy five mile per hour winds. I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't think I would have even survived that. Amazing. No, no. Uh, it was incredible how they found him, for heaven's sake. And those kind of seas, you know, mm-hmm. it's so easy for him to drown. Mike was telling me that there was some kind of a, like a, a high wing, almost like a biplane kind of um, a, a flying boat. Uh, that a walrus, perhaps? I think a walrus, yes. In fact, that is exactly what it was. Uh, showed me a picture of it on his phone. And uh, that that's what went out there and and wow. rescued him and i'm thinking how wow. how do you land so, uh, that in <laughs> exactly. 10 foot seas <laughs> without well, destroying the it the strength of those winds he didn't actually have to land he could have like come down vertically down <laughs> 75 mile an hour winds wow yeah i think he said that the the aircraft that came to rescue him uh, the walrus uh was wrecked uh after that or in that so. attempt stephanie are you back with us looks I don't know. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yep. All right. <laughs> You're okay. having all kinds of technical so, issues. I, I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it quits again, I'm like, it's it's clearly not good signal right now. So yeah. Um, well, I'm sorry. That's okay. We're we're getting close to the end of the that's show true. anyway. So yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, 50 down and 30 up. So I'm no, I need, <laughs> need to come down here and whip my internet into shape. Actually, I think I have some idea of what the problem is. I was kind of sharing with Jeff and uh, I will be making a trip to my local internet service provider this afternoon to resolve the issue. Hopefully. Oh, good for you. Yes. She's going to slap him around a little bit. Yeah. So what's wrong with you people? <laughs> you might enjoy that. Oh mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Maybe. that's true. Got to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wear. So sorry if I drop out again, I've, it's just yeah, it's just my turn for the internet gremlin and we'll, probably we'll just get Reed to put a skirt on and he can take your place, Steph. Perfect. He'll he'll stand in well for me. I have no doubt. <laughs> he will. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if we my, should comment. My vast medical knowledge. <laughs> fortunately, we don't have to talk about that on this show. So. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know what? It's getting to be that time again. I know that we didn't get to everything in this particular episode's feedback folder, but that's okay. We never do. Uh, but I think we uh, covered quite a few uh, pieces, and that's a wonderful thing. If you want to add to our incredible backlog of feedback, you can send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com, or if you have the app, both on the uh, iOS App Store and the Google Play Store for Android platform. Uh, look for the Airline Pilot Guy app. It's free, no ads, and it gives you the ability to listen to the show, watch the videos, and also send feedback all in one handy-dandy smartphone application. Uh, look Absolutely. for that information. You can get a push notice when we're about to do an unexpected extra bit. That's right. Yeah. Provided and we remember to send out that. Extra provided that Stephanie reminds me that I haven't sent out a push notification. Yeah, because Jeff is the only one that can do it right now. We need well, to- no, I mean, you guys could do it too. <laughs> but- I need the access again. We'll, we'll okay. talk about that later. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it. HR, we need to have an- another meeting. Before, <laughs> before we wind up, there was just something I wanted to mention uh, yeah. following the plain tale, which was, uh, I know some of our uh, listeners love to look, watch old movies. And if you enjoyed that plain tale, there is a movie called uh, The Malta Story. I think it's about uh, 1942, black and white movie stars uh, Alec Guinness. So, you know, those of you who like him as an actor, I think Star Wars. Um, he played the part of uh, Warby in that uh, movie, which is loosely based on his time at Malta, in Malta. Oh, interesting. Is it a good movie? Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it a few times. Uh, okay. the, the real um, dramatic part is that uh, the survival of the Maltese people during uh, what was an incredibly intense amount of bombing uh, and um, the hardships they managed to uh, make their way through and the fact that, of course, uh, um, King George V awarded them the uh, George Medal uh, to the entire island for their bravery. So did they invent malted beverages and like malted milk and that kind of thing? Malt balls? Yeah, I, you'd have to ask them that. Okay. <laughs> I know. Very bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Are with you that, light of that name, I am. I am. And I, I apologize. Uh, send, your, <laughs> send your feedback to Nick at airlinepilotguide.com. <laughs> no, just send it to me. All right. Well, again, if you want to learn more about the show, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, lots of information there. Uh, we talked about the apps, uh, social media. Steph always likes to fill us in uh, with that. Hopefully this comes through cl- crystal clear. And if not, um, just use it from a previous show, I guess. But uh, you can find us on Twitter all together at APG Crew. You can find a pinned tweet at the top there that has all of our individual contact information. If 
you send something to us there, we can all see it and reply to it. Um, you can also go over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And there's information there about things that people like to share with us, stuff that we like to share with you all, and sometimes meetup information as well. And that about sums it up for social media. Is Hillel still in your bathroom? Hillel, come on in. It's time. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. Now go back to the bathroom or closet, wherever you came from. <laughs> Not nearly so many popping peas. Uh, but he, uh, he uh, sent that in to me. It's a new new version of Hillel and Slack. I love it. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. And uh, thank great. you. Thank you for organizing the uh, the the pending the upcoming uh, Baltimore meetup. Look forward to seeing you in just a few days. Uh, and as another big round of applause. There we go for our APG crew hero Reed Fischler, who uh, came in to uh, provide uh, Nick with a, a space and uh, just crazy fast bandwidth for this uh, show. So, thank you again, sir. Thank you for having me. You are certainly welcome. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day. WAPG Airline Pilot Guy